اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم واذ وعدنا موسى 40 ليله ثم اتخذ ثم اتخذتم العجل من بعده وانتم ظالمون All right. So here we were mentioning to you last time that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had taken Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam for 40 nights to reveal unto him the revelation. And this is where we ended that while he was gone, his companions or his so-called followers had decided to make a statue of a golden calf and started to worship it. Now this is the ultimate sin. You will see over and over in Quran al-Karim that shirk is the ultimate sin. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Quran al-Karim that he can forgive whatever he wants except for shirk. So on the day of judgment, that amal that will not be forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at all is shirk. And right here, not in some type of hidden way, open, outright, clear and manifest shirk. One is to have shirk in your heart that you submit more to ghairullah than you do to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That you love some ghairullah more than you love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. outright open clear what they call shirk and jali in arabic is to worship something other than allah to bow to something other than allah to prostrate to something other than allah and that's exactly what they did with the statue of the golden calf now what is the story behind this so the story behind this is that there was a person by the name of samiri and samiri was a member of the bani israil and a member of follower purported supposed follower of sayyidina musa alayhi salam and his profession was a goldsmith and this is what he did and what he did and it's mentioned in several tafsirs and of bidawi of ibn kathir that he had stolen some jewelry from the coptic community known in arabic as qibti that was the community of fir'aun right and in other place in the quran there's another another place in tafsir is mentioned that he told the people when sayyidina musa sallam had gone to the mountain to receive the revelation he told the community to give them their jewelry and what he did is he cast that jewelry into the fire and he melted it and he took that melted gold and he refashioned it into a small idol or statue if you will of a golden calf all right so here the word ijl means calf which means the small cow the child of a cow now interestingly now sayyidna musa alayhi salam has not yet come in quran but he has a brother by the name of harun and sayyidna harun is also a nabi alayhi salam so when sayyidna musa alayhi salam went to the mountain to receive the revelation he had left behind his brother sayyidna harun alayhi salam in charge so when sayyidna harun alayhi salam saw what was going on he tried to stop the people from doing this from worshiping this golden statue of a calf and they didn't listen to him except a few a very small minority listened to him so look at this level of shirk you have seen sayyidna musa alayhi salam You have seen miracles in front of you that Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala has taken you out from the clutches of Fir'aun Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala has made you pass the waters Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala has made the ocean crush upon the armies of Fir'aun you should have absolute yakin and iman right if any of you saw a miracle like that you would have absolute belief in Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala and they've seen Sayyidina Musa Sam and Sayyidina Harun Sam is in their presence So a nabi of Allah is there in front of a nabi they're bowing and doing sajda to what a golden statue of a calf. It's outrageous shirk. No Hindu has done shirk like this because Hindus don't believe in Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala, they don't believe in anbiya, they don't have anbiya amongst them. In all likelihood this is the greatest act of shirk in the history of humanity. 
And I already told you shirk is the greatest sin according to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'm saying this for a reason you're going to see in a moment. So, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say when He reminds them of this? Now look at the next ayah. ثُمَّ أَفَوْنَا أَنْكُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ ذَلَكَ لَأَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then we forgave you. أَفَوْ أَفْوَ means Allah ta'ala's forgiveness, His kindness. He relented upon them. Allahu Akbar. They created the greatest act of shirk in the history of humanity. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that we forgave you. But there's going to be a way, a surat. There's going to be a particular way in which you're going to have to earn that forgiveness. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made a way for them. Why? لَأَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ So that you would be grateful. And the type of shukr that Allah ta'ala wants them to do here is that they should be grateful that Allah ta'ala forgave them. And out of shukr now they should accept Sayyidina Rasulullah sallam. It's not the same Jews obviously, but because Allah Ta'ala let them continue as the chosen ones throughout history, right? Until Sayyidina Isa Islam came. So the Jews of Medina should have shukr, and that they should remember how merciful Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala was. Then Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says in Quran that when we gave Musa Islam the book, which the book and Furqan. So Furqan in Arabic is a word that means that the criteria of distinction, that which will help you in determining what is right and wrong, what is true, separate the true from the false. And Furqan may refer, just be another word, for the scriptures that Sayyidina Musa Islam was given, it may refer to some additional type of revelation. Like you will see shortly that Sayyidina Rasulullah was given kitab and hikmah. لَأَلَّكُمْ تَحْتَدُونَ So that you may become people who follow and practice guidance. So that you may become people who follow and practice guidance. Alright? However, when Musa Islam said to his community that, Oh my community, you have wronged yourselves greatly. By taking this golden statue of a calf. So it's not even an ijl, it's not a real living. They didn't even worship a living animal. So you have wronged yourselves greatly. You should make tawbah to that being who created you. Make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Sayyidina Musa is showing us this tigna here. He's saying, don't ask me for forgiveness. Certainly you were disloyal to me as if I'm your prophet. You betrayed me. I went to the mountain to get revelation to guide you, to become your prophet and guide you better. But don't ask not me you're going to have to make tawbah for. You have to make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is an instruction. That even though anbiya may tell us things, ulama may tell us things, our teachers and instructors may tell us things, you shouldn't feel bad that you have to get the forgiveness of your instructor or teacher if you break the teachings of deen. You must make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because it's Allah ta'ala's deen. So what did he say? Fatubu ila ba'irukum. And what was the way of tawbah? Now this is not saying the Muslims' own fatwa. This is part of Quranic wahi, and certainly then it was part of the wahi revelation that Allah Ta'ala sent to him. فَقْتُلُوا anfusakum. What you're going to have to do is kill yourselves. Is what it means. Commit suicide. Now what actually is going to happen, the way this is going to work out, is this is going, they're going to, if you will, um, do attempted suicide. Attempted suicide. They're going to try to kill themselves. Alright? Now we're going to do the rest of the detail of the story before this point, later this is going to come in Surah Taha, verses number 85 to about 99. But I'm going to skip that and I'll do it with you over there when we come to Surah Taha. Alright, so turn in Toba to your Creator, which is your Master, and slay yourselves. This is an intense way of doing Toba. And the Mufassirin have explained that the way this happened was that some cloud or darkness or some veil came over them. And they were ordered to take out their knives... And it's not really suicide, rather it says mutual killing. Uktulu anfusukum, they were ordered to slay one another. 
they were ordered to slay one another under this darkness or under this cloud. What happened exactly here? So some of the commentators write that those whom were the real conspirators, the ones who kind of pushed everyone and egged everyone to do that shirk, they were able to successfully be slain through this mass mutual self-whatever killing. And the others, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then made them stop, right? And they were allowed to live. They may have been wounded, but they were allowed to live. And obviously, like I told you, those few people who were with Sayyidina Hawala Salaam and didn't commit the sin of shirk, they weren't asked to do this type of tawbah in any case. So what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in Qur'an? What did He say to them? And He wants us to know in Qur'an, ذَلَكُمْ خَيْرٌ لُكُمْ in بَارِئُكُمْ That is better for you. In other words, it's better for you that you engage in killing one another as a means of tawbah for this sin, rather than you show up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bringing the sin on the Day of Judgment. So it shows you the intensity of the sin of shirk. Better that you engage in mass mutual slaughter of one another. Then you deal with the punishment that Allah Ta'ala has preserved in the Akhirah for this punishment of shirk. Innahu huwa tawabur rahim. That know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the acceptor of tawbah and He is all merciful even though you did such a gross violation. If you give up your worldly life for Him, this is the ultimate sacrifice to give your life for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? You can view it in the sense that you should make each other shaheed. You can view it in that sense. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept your tawbah. Then, after this, now after this episode, now you would think after this, see the right? You would think after this next event, what do they say? So they said to say the Musa salam that we are not going to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It means we will never ever take iman hatta until what? We will never, sorry, we will never ever take iman laka in you. So they directly tell their Nabi. The Sahaba of that Nabi, look their Nabi in their eye and tell him, we will never ever believe in you, hatta narallah jahratan, until we see Allah subhanahu clearly. We want to see Allah subhanahu then we'll believe that you are Nabiullah, that you are Rasulullah. So then what happened, then Allah subhanahu sent a punishment onto them. And Allah Ta'ala says in Quran that what He sent, he, what classed then was a flash of lightning, or a bolt of lightning, or a bolt of thunder, and in such a state that they were, you know, wakefully or watching that bolt of thunder. Alright? Alright. Now what were they were looking for? They actually thought that by being so bold, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would manifest Himself. They thought that by saying this to the Nabi of Allah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would respond and manifest Himself openly, so they looked up. Allahu Akbar. So really it means that they thought Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds to their commands. They thought that all they have to do is threaten Sayyidina Musa Islam and then Allah Ta'ala will make Himself appear. So they looked up and instead of saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a bolt of lightning or a bolt of thunder, however you want to translate it, right upon them as they were looking up, thinking that they were going to be able to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Quran al-Kareem that we caused you, we sent upon you after you died. Right? لَأَلَّكُمْ تَشْكِرُونَ So that you may become people of thanks. So what does that mean? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused them to die by means of this lightning and thunder and then raised them up again. Raise them up again. Give them another chance. What you're watching here is chance after chance after chance after chance. So they were raised up again after Allah made them die through that bolt of lightning. Why? Again, same thing. لَأَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ 
that finally you would have shukr and you would be grateful, obedient servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now what happened, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent uh, a cloud, a shade of a cloud on them. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down upon them something called man and salwa. Okay, what is man and what is salwa? There are different views that are mentioned in the tafsir. In tafsir al-mujahid, who is a tabin, he narrates that Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas said that man was a food that would descend on the trees. Allah wouldn't drop it on the ground. Allah would descend it on the trees. And then the banisha would pluck that food out from the trees so it means it was a type of fruit. Another sahaba has stated that man was actually a type of milk-type liquid that would come down almost like ice. And then it would melt and it was as sweet as honey. And they would drink that as you can imagine, like an energy drink, and that would be sufficient for them. Now, it's mentioned to Sayyidina bin Kathir that the Bani Israel were told by Sayyidina Wilson to take only what they need and only eat what they wanted to eat and they shouldn't store it because that would be against the wakil. They shouldn't think that, oh, it's coming down and we should hoard it up because who knows if Allah SWT is going to send anymore. But they refused that command and they started to store it up. They started to store it, they started to hoard it. When they started to store it, it started to spoil. So this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying here, that you should eat from those pure things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down upon you. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, is saying that we have not done any wrongdoing upon you, but you have wronged your own selves. What did it mean that when they decided to hoard this fruit, it started to spoil? So Allah ta'ala didn't send something rotten upon you, but you did, He wanted to send it upon you fresh, new, every time you needed to eat, but you decided to hoard it yourselves. Next incident here, salwa. Salwa is a type of bird. Normally it is mentioned as quail or partridge in English, but you can just imagine that it is a type of poultry type of bird. Now, next ayah, Allah SWT mentions that the next incident, that when we told you, the, told the Bani Israel, when we told them that they should enter a particular village or a particular community, this town, according to Mufassirin, there are two possibilities. Either it's Beit al-Muqaddas, this is that time when they entered Jerusalem for the first time. Or there's another town which is in Palestine called Jericho. Either they're entering Jericho for the first time. But most likely this is Beit al-Muqaddas. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told them to keep moving, right? You cross the sea, Allah is guiding them. through Sayyidina Muslim, keep moving until you enter Beit al-Muqaddas. This is then that incident in our Quran as well. When the Jews were given entry into and then given sovereignty over Jerusalem. So look what an incredible blessing Allah Ta'ala has given them. That despite all of the shirk, disobedience, violation, disloyalty, betraying Sayyidina Musa even then Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala is continuing to keep them as a chosen people and guiding them to this quote-unquote chosen land of Jerusalem and Palestine. Now when they enter it, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala tells them that you should enter it, right? Uh, uh, where did it go? Enter this. And you should eat whatever you want from that place, however you want, whatever you want, ragadan, and as much as an amount that you want in a hearty manner. And you should enter the door or the gate of that community. You should enter the gates of Jerusalem in sajda, sujjada. You should enter in a state of sajda. Now what happens instead, what did they do, right? They instead, and here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned another uh, surah, surah al-ma'idah, which is surah number 5, verse number 21. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that, oh my community, enter that land. And here is the word, al-ard al-muqaddasa. 
It's in Quran. You're not looking at this different surah. Surah number 5, verse number 21. Allah says, Oh, my community, which means the Bani Israel at that time, you should enter the sacred land which Allah Subhanahu has decreed for you and do not turn your backs on it, otherwise you shall end up as the losers. So there in Surah Al-Ma'idah, Surah 5, verse 22, it continues, they responded to Sayyidina Musa, salam, that, O Musa, indeed within this community is a people of great strength and we will never enter it until they leave it. So what happened was is that they were scared of entering into Jerusalem because there were already people living in Jerusalem. And those people who were already living in Jerusalem, or maybe he's put it up, have you put it up? No? Gonchlar, right? Hafiz, put up Surah Maida, Surah number 5, verses 21, 22. 21 onwards, all right? Let me just knock this off over here. All right? Surah Maida, verses number 21, 22. So, so they said that we won't enter this place until they leave it. Now, what the Mufassirin have said that these were, it was a nation of tyrants, right? So they were evil people and with extreme strength as well who were living there. So what did Allah subhanahu wa want them to do? Allah subhanahu wa actually wanted that the Bani Israel should enter and do jihad against those tyrants. And they should conquer those evil people and expel those evil people from the sacred land. So if you see, if you have it in front of you, verse number 21 you can see it says Holy Land in this translation, right? If you look in the Arabic, you can see it says, Udkhulul Ard al-Muqaddasa, right? So there's a nation of turns. Okay, so now you're with me. So they didn't go. So then the next ayah, number 23. So two men from those who feared to disobey what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had said, enter upon them through the gate, for when you have entered it, you will be predominant, and upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you should rely, you should have talked on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if you are believers. So they were told, go in, don't worry. You should have tawakkalan al-spantah. How did they respond? They said, Ya Musa, we'll never enter it as long as they're within it. So go you and your Lord. Go you and your Lord. I don't know if you can highlight this. This is verse number 24. Now they're saying that you go, it will say Urdu. That's what they're saying. You go and your Rabb should go. We're not going to go. After all this and Allah SWT is on the cusp of giving them this Jerusalem. This is their history. This is the beginning of the history of Jewish Israel. This is how they begin. It doesn't get any better unfortunately across the centuries and millennia. Right? So they told Sayyidina Muhammad that you go and let your Rabb go. We're not going to go. Indeed, we are going to remain right here. Allahu Akbar. So what it means is that we're not willing to fight. You and your Rabb should fight. So here now, if you look at verse number 25, now Sayyidina Muhammad gives up on them. So he turns to Allah SWT, Ya Allah, I have no control over these people. The only one I control over, I have any control over is myself and my brother. Right? That means Sayyidina Harun al-Islam. And obviously you can imagine those two people who early volunteered to go. So he had two true sahaba. Allahu Akbar. This is the sha'an of our sahaba of this ummah. That Allah SWT gave Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam 120,000 who were his true and righteous followers and followed him in each and every hukam of Allah who followed him in each and every sunnah and each and every hikmah that he sent. 
And Sayyidina Musa Islam had one brother as a Nabi, Sayyidina Harun Islam, and the earlier verse mentions two Sahaba who were willing to go. Allahu Akbar. What a difference. What a difference. So then Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala said that, Ya Allah, make a difference. Because what? What's going on? Sayyidina Musa Islam thought that Azab is going to come. So he says, look, consider us to be separate. Make a distinction between us and the sinning people. Right? He said, well, Azab aane wala hai. Azab must be coming. Send it on them. Me, my brother, and these two sahaba were separate. Allah Can you imagine how sad it must be for a Nabi? Right? Imagine a teacher, a professor who has students that every single one of them turns out to be a rebel except two. Hmm? Amazing. Amazing. So why is this being told, right, in over there in Surah Ma'idah? One reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which, what I'm trying to explain to you is that sometimes people wonder that why is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only shared part of the stories? You don't have the complete history of Musa Islam in the Quran. Because these are those parts of their histories that have some lessons for us. And one lesson for that time was that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was trying to show Sayyidina Rasulullah that you're getting sad that all of Makkah and all of Taif aren't following you. Look what happened to Sayyidina Musa Islam. He had one brother and two Sahaba. That's it who followed him. At least look at how many people who are following you and don't feel bad. People rejecting the prophets, this is an old thing. This is not happening with you for the first time. This has happened long time ago. Look at all these events of Bani Israel, how much they rejected their prophet. But me and you should think about ourselves that we don't want to become the Bani Israel of this ummah. We don't want these attributes to come into us. We don't want to be the members of the prophets of ummah who are like those Bani Israel who rejected Sayyidina Musa Islam, who refused to follow the commandments of Allah, who refused to follow the sunnah and the teachings of the prophet. We don't want to become like that. Just continue a little bit in Surah Al-Ma'idah. So then one more verse, verse number 26. So then Allah subhanahu wa then what did Allah subhanahu wa say? And this is Quran. Then indeed it is forbidden to them for 40 years. Allah ta'ala punish them that if you're not willing to go in and do jihad to remove evil and tyrancy from this sacred land. Baytul Muqaddas is holy and sacred. Evil should be removed from it. You have, and Allah ta'ala is telling the Bani Israel, you should go do jihad and to do that. And if you refuse to do it, then I'm not going to let you enter the sacred land for 40 years. And what do they do? You will wander through, you will wander aimlessly. You will be homeless. You will be refugees. You will be migrant. You won't have that Baytul Muqaddas that I wanted you to have. This is their history. This is the beginning of the history of Jerusalem. Alright, so let's come back now to Surah Baqarah. So come back to Surah Baqarah over here on here. Uh, by now we should have reached, I think, verse number, we were on 58. So going back to number 2, verse number 58. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said here, Eat to your heart's contents whatever you wish and enter the gates, right? Enter the gates. Enter the gates of the city. Now these were the same gates that they were supposed to have 40 years earlier, entered triumphantly, right? Through jihad. Now they're entering into it passively. And now you have this word in Quran, وَكُولُوا hittatun. Now, hittatun is a word that means to seek forgiveness. To seek forgiveness and you'll be forgiven. In other words, all you have to do is seek forgiveness. All you have to do is enter it in a state of sajda. Forty years ago, you had to enter in a state of jihad and triumphantly defeat those evil tyrants to get this. Now, forty years later, all you have to do, hittatun, make istighfar to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and having entered that gate with sajda. So Allah will reduce the requirement. Before the requirement was jihad, now the requirement is tawbah, hittatun, seek forgiveness and do sajda. That's all you have to do. What you have to do is seek forgiveness and do sajda. 
And what will happen? Nagfir lakum. Allah Ta'ala again saying, I will forgive for you khatayakum all of your errors, all of your sins, all of your mistakes. Wasanazidul muhsineen. And I will even increase those people who are muhsineen. Meaning you even become muhsineen, which is one of the highest levels of iman mentioned in Quran. How easy Allah Ta'ala made it for them. How easy Allah Ta'ala made it for them. But what happened? They changed what was said to them. So those who wrong changed the words to a statement other than that was said to them. What does that mean? So it comes in the books of Hadith and instead of saying hitta with a shadda on the ta, if you see it in Arabic, they said hinta with a noon. And hinta in Arabic means wheat. So they didn't want to ask Allah Ta'ala's forgiveness. Why? Because they didn't think they did anything wrong. They thought they were justified. Forty years ago, forty years of wandering still didn't make them accept their error. They thought they were justified in not going in and doing that jihad at that time. They didn't want to seek Allah Ta'ala's forgiveness. So they entered that city of Jerusalem, Beit al-Muqaddis, saying what? Hintatun, hintatun, which means wheat. So they entered saying, instead of saying, astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, they entered saying, roti, roti. Right? They said, saying, wheat, wheat. That's how they entered the city. So that's what Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala is referring to, change the words. By the way, this is one of many, many examples, and I'll try to show you this, that you cannot understand Qur'an without hadith. For example, look at the start of verse number 59. That those who were unjust and oppressors, they changed the statement to other than what was said to them. You'd have no idea, what does that mean? What statement did they change? Is it, you wouldn't have not known it was the word hittatun that they changed. What did they change it into? Why did they change it from hittatun to hinta? You'll never know any of this unless you look at hadith. It's impossible to understand Qur'an without hadith. Now there's a place in the Qur'an where Allah Himself is going to say that. When that comes, I'm going to do that for you. But I'm going to be showing you as you go, it's impossible. Impossible. And I say that because sometimes there are some people today who think that we just follow Qur'an. You can't just follow Qur'an. If you ask them, what's the meaning of this verse? They'll have no idea. They never can explain it to you. What was the word that was changed? What was it changed to? Why was it changed? Alright, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says it. What does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do? Then He sends upon those people who committed this injustice, right? These people who thought that they couldn't do anything wrong. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends a rizan. A rizan means some type of punishment, plague, calamity, torment. Allah Ta'ala sends that upon them, bima kanu yafsukun, due to the fisk that they used to do, due to their disobedience. Due to their disobedience. So this may be that punishment, right, that earlier Sayyidina Musa was worried about, that that would come. So some type of punishment comes upon them. Likely that punishment is drought. Why? Because immediately afterwards, what does it say? tasqa Musa When Sayyidina Musa begged Allah Ta'ala to send water. So one of the punishment that was given, so the answer Bayt al-Muqaddis. But instead of finding it a holy, sacred, fertile, beautiful land that Allah wanted it to be, He let them enter it, but because they wouldn't enter in a state of sajda, and they wouldn't say that word of forgiveness, then Allah Ta'ala made it barren, infertile, drought. So then now Sayyidina Musa, look at His mercy, and these are Anbiya. They don't give up on their followers. So He, he could have given up on them by now. He said, I look, I, forget it, I'll leave you. He makes dua to Allah Ta'ala, Allah Ta'ala send them water. In other words, remove, reverse that punishment, calamity, that ridge that you send upon them. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did that, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told Sayyidina Musa Islam that strike your asa, your staff, strike these big rocks, these boulders with your staff. When Sayyidina Musa Islam did that, then sprout, this, they sprouted from that boulder 
12 different springs of gushing water. And the reason it's 12, because the Bani Israel were from 12 different tribes or clans or groups. And even Allah SWT knew, <laughs> these people are going to fight. If I make it one, I better give each one their separate thing. Even Allah's mercy is continuing. Right? That these guys are going to fight like you have little kids, and you know that you can't give them one toy and they can all share it. You have to give each one a different one. So Allah SWT gives each of these 12 tribes a different spring. That's another miracle, right? That's another miracle. And the number itself is part of the miracle. Lest them think that, oh, you know, or maybe there was water under there anyway somehow, right? Why did it come out in exactly the same number of the tribes that you are? Okay? Now, everyone, so we're saying that every one of those people realized which one was the place for them to drink. In other words, all of those 12 different springs was allotted to one of those tribes. And then again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala eat and drink min rizqillah. He keeps sending them risk. First man, the salwa, water, but he's trying to get them to accept that it's risk from Allah subhanahu wa So eat and drink. Don't, you know, spread and walk on this earth, mufsideen, spreading fitna and fasad. Don't do that. Okay. Then, وَإِذْ قُلْتُمْ يَا مُوسَى Now remember that time that when we said, O Musa salam, لَن نَصْبِرَ عَلَى تَعَامٍ So what did they say? They said to Musa Islam, they said to the Nabi, that, oh, our Nabi, we can't, we don't like having just one food. We don't like having man and salwa every day. There should be some variety. Hmm? You don't want man and salwa every day, there should be some variety. Fad'ulana rabbaka. Again, you make dua. Now they could have made dua themselves, the Mufasrinu. If they had started doing shukr and accepting Allah Ta'ala as their rub, then they could have made dua Allah Ta'ala to themselves. Allah, we want something, Allah would have given to them. But the language, the tone they took, that you make dua. Again, rabbaka to your rub. You make dua to your rub that he should give us things from the earth. So the word yukhrid is because they wanted things from the earth. They should, he should give us things from which the earth grows. And what are those things that they wanted? So these are all different types of grains, right? So these are lentils and let me give you this proper translation here. Okay, he's put vegetable, cucumbers, wheat, lentils, and it's onions, all right? You, some of these words may be translated slightly different, especially cucumbers, but different type of vegetables, wheat, grains, things that grow from the earth, all right? That's what they wanted. And there's a notion here that what they're doing is they're trading the atla, what comes from above, for the adna from what comes from below. They're trading what comes purely from Allah subhanahu That's the most organic you can get. And what's coming from the ground, which may have some mixture, some pollution, some pests, some disease. Right? But that's what they wanted. Okay. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to them that are you trading that which is you're trading for what is huwa adna billadi huwa khair? You want something lesser instead of what was better for you? Now then what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do? He sends them to go to Misr. Right? He says that go down to a town. Misr means a town and you will have what you ask for. In other words, leave this Baytul Muqaddas, go down to this other place, and when you go to this other place, then you will see that that land is fertile. Because remember here, they're living in a state of drought, right? Their land where they're living cannot, they cannot grow these things on that type of land. Okay. Then what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do to them? وَذُرِبَتْ عَلَيْهُمُ الذِلَّةُ وَالْمَسْكَنَةُ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends upon them dhilla, which means disgrace. Maskana can mean poverty. It can mean shame. It can be abasing them. And here is put translated for you, the word misery. 
And when they returned, so when they returned from that other town, when they ate their lentils and onions and vegetables, and they came back to Beit Muqaddis, min Allah. I told you it was coming. Remember Maghdubi alayhim? Right? So they came back with the anger from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is one of the several places in Quran where this word is used for them. So that's why some of the Mufassirun felt that Maghdubi alayhim meant the Jews. So they came back. So what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling them here is, look, I've granted your request. Don't get me wrong. I granted your request. I said, okay, that's what you want. Go down to that town and you will get it. But the cost of that request is my anger. So we should also learn lesson for this is sometimes we want things in this world that Allah Ta'ala didn't want for us. Sometimes we trade what is khair, what is better for us, for what is lower. And when we get it, don't be deceived and think that Allah Ta'ala also wanted you to have it. No, He didn't want He wanted you to have khair. He wanted you to do what was pure and righteous and noble and virtuous. Instead you wanted something else, Allah may give it to you, but when you go and get that other thing, and you were, what will you get with it? You may also have waba'u bi min Allah, we may also get the wrath of Allah subhanahu wa This is a lesson for us. Alright? ذَلِكَ بِأَنَّهُمْ كَانُوا يَكْفُرُونَ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ After all of this, now Allah Ta'ala uses the word kufr for them. He could have used it much earlier. Why is Allah Ta'ala angry with you? Because you denied, disrespected, made a mockery of the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it can also mean the verses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, revelation Allah Ta'ala sent on Sayyidina Musa Islam to you. And what did you do? وَيَقْتُلُونَ النَّبِيِّينَ بِغَيْرِ الْحَقِّ Allahu Akbar. This is the Bani Israel. They killed Anbiya. They murdered prophets. Quran is saying, this is who these people are. This is their history. I'm talking about the historical Jews, right? They murdered prophets. The people who murdered prophets are the ones who entered Jerusalem, even that 40 years later. That's why we're not really impressed by this whole nation myth history of Israel, because Quran is telling us how that thing started. <laughs> Murderers of prophets. <laughs> not that you could ever justly or rightly murder a prophet, but Swantal is using a taqid, a strong emphasis on them. ذَلَكَ بِمَا أَصَوْ وَكَانُوا يَعْتَدُونَ This is because you, you know, أَصَوْ means you were disobedient. وَكَانُوا يَعْتَدُونَ And you were transgressors. Alright. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to address another issue. And this is one of the most often quoted ayahs in the Quran that needs to be explained. Here as well, I'm going to make use of some other uh, surahs, so our Hafiz Mazambal is going to have to find them. I'm going to quote a couple of things to you. Let me, ex- let me just translate this first for you. Let me read it and translate it first and then we'll come to it. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَالَّذِينَ هَادُوا وَالنَّسَارَ وَالسَّابِيِينَ وَمَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَأَمِلَ الصَّالِحًا فَلَهُمْ أَجْرُهُمْ إِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ وَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ and the Jews, and the Christians, and the Sabians, those who believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the last day, means hereafter, and do righteous deeds, they will have their reward with their Lord. And there will be no fear upon them, and nor will they ever have cause to grieve. Alright. Now what happens here is many times people quote this verse to suggest a number of things. Number one thing this verse is used to quote this concept of unity of religions. That all religions are equally okay. Look, the Quran is saying that if you're a Jew, or you're a Christian, or you're a Sabian, I'll tell you a little bit later what that community is, or you're a Muslim, as long as you believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, 
the hereafter and amalun saliha. Right? And remember I told you that uh, this includes ibadah and good deeds. And secularists take this to mean that it doesn't include ibadah. So what does it say? That you should believe in God, believe in a hereafter, and just be a good person. Then it doesn't matter. This is how the seculars will translate this verse. Believe in God, believe in the hereafter, and be a good person. Then it doesn't matter whether you're Muslim or Jew or Christian or Sabian, you will go into Jannah. Right? Okay. That's not the proper translation, but that's the way they will present in English the meaning that they think this verse is giving. Now the first thing that is critical here is that it does say, Man amana billahi wal yawmil akhir, it only mentions two things. Belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and belief in the last day. It doesn't mention belief in Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu And that's why then some people thought that, well, maybe that means that all Jews and Christians will also go into Jannah as long as they believe in Allah and do righteous deeds. Now I want you to understand first the context of this verse because you've seen it. What was happening? Up till now you see a shift. Up till now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was addressing the Bani Israel. Rather, you can put it this way, that up till now, Allah Ta'ala was primarily addressing the Jews of Medina and telling them the historical stories of the Bani Israel. Now, and why was Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala doing that? Why? Would He do all of that to end here, but it's okay, you don't have to believe in the Prophet? The whole purpose of all of this was to build up to the point and telling the Jews of Medina that even if you believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if you believe in the hereafter, you have to now believe in this Prophet. You have to believe in the Quran. That came many times before for you. You have to believe in this book that is revealed, that confirms what you already had. You have to believe in this Prophet. Allah tells building up to that point. You think all of a sudden he would withdraw and say, okay, it's fine, as long as you believe in me and you believe in the Day of Judgment and you're a good person, that's it, you're done. So that's the first thing to think about. The very context in which this verse is appearing is going to tell you that that can't be what the meaning is. All right. Now, the concept of risala of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So if you were to, if you can do it quickly, if you were to look at verse number, surah number 61, verse number 6. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Quran al-Kareem, surah number 61, verse number 6, and mention when Isa alayhi salam, Isa ibn Maryam, Isa alayhi salam, the son of Maryam radhiallahu said, Ya Bani Israel, he addressed the Bani Israel, that indeed I am the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who's come to you confirming what came before me, means of the Torah, and bringing good tidings of a messenger to come after me whose name is Ahmad. But when Nabi Karim salam came to them with clear evidences, they said, that this is obvious magic. Alright? So it's showing you that, let's take first group that we're taking out as the Christians, right? So Quran is saying that part of Christianity, you see, what do we know for sure is Christianity, whatever the Quran says, Sayyidina Isa Islam said, that's guaranteed to be original Christianity. Quran is showing you that Sayyidina Isa Islam, original Christianity, mentioned the coming of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. Ahmad, Muhammad, sallallahu these are both names of our beloved messenger, sallallahu Just so you should know, by the way, Ahmad means that that being who has praised Allah Ta'ala the most. Nobody has praised Allah Subhanahu as much as Sayyidina Rasulullah, sallallahu And Muhammad means that person whom Allah Ta'ala has praised the most. Nobody has been praised by Allah Subhanahu as much as Sayyidina Rasulullah, sallallahu so here's Ahmad al-Mujtaba, Muhammad al-Mustafa, Imam al-Anbiya al-Mursaleen, Sayyidina wa Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Alright? Okay. 
So that shows you it's part of Christianity. Don't think that this verse in Surah Bakr is suggesting that Christianity doesn't include Risala. You see why I'm giving you this? Surah 61 verse 6 is establishing to you that Christianity, original Christianity includes belief in the Risalat, the prophethood of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. Alright. Second proof. That if you look at uh, Surah 7, Surah 7, 157. Okay. So... So who is it? Those people who follow, who is that? That's Sayyidina Rasulullah Right? So those who follow the Prophet when they find written with them in the Torah and the Injil, both are done now, Jews and Christians. Original Judaism and original Christianity mentions following Sayyidina Rasulullah And what is the Prophet going to do when he comes? He's going to bid for them what is fair and forbid what is unfair, etc., etc. So those who believe, now look, those who believe in Him and support Him and help Him and follow the light sent down with Him, those are the ones who are successful. So original Judaism, original Christianity requires and demands belief in Sayyidina Rasulullah So you cannot suggest that this verse in Surah Baqarah, you have to understand Qur'an in light of Qur'an. You have to take all the verses of Qur'an on a particular topic before you decide on a particular topic. Okay? All right. Okay, keep going. Uh, keep going down. One fifty-eight. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala tells Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi that you should tell the people. Who should you tell? Ya ayuhannas. Who should the Prophet tell? Ayuhannas. Nas includes Jews, Christians, Sabians, everyone. So the risala is for who? Believing in the Prophet is for who? Is for everyone. So you have to tell them that. I am a messenger, and the Prophet is being told that he should say that I am a messenger of Allah sent to you from the one to whom belongs the kingdom of heavens and earth. There is no God, but he gives life from death. So believe in Allah subhanahu wa and his messenger, the unlettered Prophet, just part of the belief, it's Iman. So here it might just say, Man amana billahi wal yawmil akhiri. But there it's saying what? That you have to believe in Allah subhanahu wa fa'aminu billahi wa rasulihi nabiyyil ummiyi. All three words are coming again. Look at the very top line in the Arabic. وَآمَنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ النَّبِيِّ الْأُمِّيِّ So to suggest that the Qur'an said, people will say that to you, that the Qur'an says that you just have to have Iman and Allah on the last day. No, so the Qur'an doesn't say that. Qur'an says what all of its verse taken in totality say. And Allah says what the whole Qur'an says. Khair, I can give, keep going, but you know we don't, uh, we have to hit some speed. Alright? But I think these are enough verses to make it clear for you. Now about Deen of Islam. To make it clear to you that no other deen is valid, so look at Surah Al Imran, Surah number 3, verse 85. Surah Al Imran, Surah number 3, verse 85. 
Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Imran says, Surah Al-Imran verse 24, وَمَنْ يَتَّبِ غَيْرَ الْإِسْلَامِ دِينَ And that person who chooses to follow anything other than Al-Islam as their deen, فَلَنْ يُقْبَلَ مِنْهُ It will never ever be accepted from them. وَهُوَ فِي الْآخِرَةِ And a person who tries to follow something other than Al-Islam as a deen will be in the Akhirah, مِنَ الْخَاسِرِينَ From amongst the losers. It makes it clear the Qur'an doesn't say that all the deens are okay and the deens are still fine. No. The Qur'an says you can only and only follow the deen of Islam. Right? Okay. So let's get back to... Get back to Surah Baqarah. Right? Okay. So Sabin. So that was the... So who are the Sabin? So... According to one Sahaba, the Sabin were a particular type of people who had Tawheed, so they were monotheists, but they didn't follow any particular deen. They didn't have a Wahi, they didn't have a Kitab, they didn't have a Nabi, right? So Jews and Christians have scriptures, Torah and Injil, they have prophets, Musa, Islam, Isa, Islam. The Sabians were people who had neither scripture, no book, nor any prophet, but they did believe in Tawheed. Others say that they were some type of mixture of Jews, Judaism, and Christianity. Others have said that they were Jews and Christians who had somehow deviated into another type of movement. Allahu alam, they don't seem to, nobody claims to be one of the Sabin at all anymore, and that apparently has been the case for over a thousand, several thousand years actually, more than a thousand years. Alright? Okay. But you should know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said elsewhere in the Quran, you have to show it now. Don't, I may say things, but you don't have to show them. Allah ta'ala said, and just for your notes, you can write, in Surah Fatah verses 26 and 27, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said that He sends a Nabi to every community. So clearly the Sabians must have been some community to whom some message was sent. And they, were, and they were also some type of monotheistic community, even if maybe not necessarily any book or scripture had been given to them. So now Surah Baqarah, verse number 63. We should have reached number 63 by now. Okay. Next then, Allah subhanahu wa is going back. So after this interlude, Allah is going back to talking to the Bani Israel. And remember that time when we took a pledge and covenant from you and we raised you above, we raised on top of you the Mount of Thur. Now what happened over here, right? Literally, mountain Thur, this mount called Thur, was taken by Allah subhanahu wa and put over them. Put over them, this was the way that He had made them pledge. He took a Mithak, Mithak in Arabic means a covenant and a pledge from them, and He raised the mountain of Thur. So when they broke their pledge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took the mountain of Tur up from the earth, brought it over that community and hovered it above their head to make them get back to accept that pledge again. All right? And you will see this. This is coming in Surah Al-A'raf. I'm tempted to do it now, but we'll have to do it over there. Okay? So we won't do it. Well, here, I'll do it a little bit later in Surah Baqarah. It's going to come in La Ikraha Fiddin. This is another verse that many times people misunderstand. There is no compulsion in religion. Actually, Allah is referring to this incident, that when I brought the mountain of Thur on top of your heads, even then I wasn't forcing you. But I'll do that over there when we come to it. Now let's go back to Sayyidina Musa, Salman, and Bani Israel. So now you've seen a whole series of incidents, right? Now comes this very famous incident. I think we've reached there by now. Okay, so we brought on top of you the mountain of Tur and uh, that you should take what was given to you with strength and you should remember 
what is in it. In other words, that scripture, so that you may become a person of taqwa. But then instead, what did you do? Then you turned your backs after this. After all of this, you still spurned Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And know that, that if it was not for the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon you, وَرَحْمَتُهُ and His mercy, لَكُنْتُمْ مِنَ الْخَاسِرِينَ You would have been amongst the losers. So here again, Allah Ta'ala suggested that even still after all this, He kept His fuzzle and His rahmah, His grace and His mercy on top of them. Now, there's another issue here coming about the Sabbath, right? That is that indeed that those of you who knew, uh, indeed those of you who transgressed in the matter of the Sabbath, all of you knew. And we had told you. And so what happened to you that Allah Ta'ala commands them, فَقُلْنَا لَهُمْ كُونُوا كِرَدَةً Allah Ta'ala addressed them and issued a command to them that you should be like monkeys. خَاسِئِينَ abased and disgraced monkeys. Alright. Now sometimes people ask a question over here uh, that uh, sometimes people think this is figurative. And some of the people think that figurative would mean that they turned into monkeys in terms of their emotional character or their spiritual development. But it can't be figurative because in terms of emotional and spiritual sense, they're already monkeys. <laughs> Haven't you seen all the things that they've been doing? It's ape-like behavior to behave like this with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Sayyidina Musa Islam. So it cannot be understood figuratively because in every figurative sense of the word, they were actually displaying animalistic type behavior. Why do I say this? Because Allah ta'ala says in Quran, when he talks about a group of people, that they are like animals, but they're even worse. Who are those people? The ghafilun, the people who neglect the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So according to Quran, people who neglect commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala become some animal. These people were already sub-animal at this point. So there's no figurative sense. It's literally, they were literally changed into apes and monkeys. Literally. Now maybe they eventually evolved back into humans, and that's what the Jewish... Scientists are discovering their own ancestors today. But they're not discovering Sayyidina Adam Islam. So this is one possible Quranic answer to evolution, that yes, the nisbat between humans and primates is because the Jews were converted into apes and monkeys. Right? Khair, so this is a very a big sign that finally Allah's adab has come. Right? Up till now, Keep getting mercy, keep getting mercy, keep getting mercy. Then what did they do? They violated the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the Sabbath, right? This is their day of worship, which is Saturday. And they were told by Allah subhanahu wa not to do many things. That's the story that's coming a bit later in Quran about, for example, fishing. So they shouldn't hunt or fish on this day. So what did they do? They used to put their nets in the water, right? Right before Saturday would start. And the nets would basically fish for them because they would catch fish. When the net traps the fish, that can also be called fishing, Right? And then after the 24 hours of that Saturday ended, they would pick up the nets simply and they would have the fish. Now, if you look at it rationally, you would think compared to the other things they've done, right, killing Anbiya, worshipping a statue, this issue of violating the Sabbath is relatively minor. So me and you should also take an ibrah. When Allah Ta'ala keeps pukar, they can take a small when, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses at any moment with any one of us not to treat us according to his puzzle and rahmah, his grace and mercy, but if he wants to treat us according to the fact that he's al-jabbar, al-mutakabbir, al-azim, then even the most smallest sins of ours, are qabl muakhda are worth being punished for. Are worth being punished for. 
It's the shan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He does as he pleases. You, he's, Bani Israel can kill Anbiyan, he'll still forgive them. They can worship a statue, he'll still forgive them. They violate the Sabbath, he'll turn them into monkeys. Allahu Akbar Kameena. Subhanallah wa bihamni. Subhanallah al-Azim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is almighty, all great. He has all power. He does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. All right. So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, we made, them, uh, we made this a sign. Nakalan means a sign. Uh, for A manifest sign. Right? That's what it means. Literally for what when performed, people who come afterwards. And an admonishment for the people of taqwa. A warning for the people of taqwa. An advice for the people of taqwa. Alright. Still, their story has an end. When Sayyidina Musa Islam addresses his community and says that indeed Allah subhanahu has commanded you that you should slaughter a bakara. Alright. Now is coming that incident after which this surah has been named. Alright. By the way, if you want to look at the issue of Sabbath, that is in Surah Araf, uh, verse number 163, which specifically mentions that incident. All right? Okay. Now, this is a long story. Let me tell you the story a little bit in detail, and then we'll translate it for you from the Quran. So this is the story that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically tells them to slaughter a cow. Very simple thing. What a very simple thing to ask. Much easier than asking them to go in and do jihad and remove evil tyrants from Beit Muqaddas. Slaughter one Bakara. Achha, what, does, what does this word mean? Some people say that it means cow. Some people it me- says it means ox and buffalo. So different Mufasrin have given different views. Let's take it that it means either an ox or a buffalo. And one reason they give for that is you're going to see that there's a mention of it plowing fields. And plowing fields that's done by ox and buffalo that's not done by cows. So they were asked to sla- slaughter one of these. Why were they asked to slaughter it? So know what happened because Elspanta is going to explain it several verses later. Somebody was murdered. And they came to, somebody in their community was the victim of a murder. They came to Sayyidina Musa Sama and they wanted him to find out as a Nabi that he should know these things or ask Allah all these things. Who was the murderer? So then when Sayyidina Musa Sama did Raju, he turned to Allah SWT and asked that they come to him with this. So Allah SWT told him that tell them they should slaughter a, slaughter a buffalo. And then on that basis then it will be discovered somehow who that victim of that, uh, who the perpetrator of that murder is. But actually what Allah SWT was doing that he was testing them. He was testing them. And when he tests them, right, uh, they failed this test. So instead of slaughtering that buffalo, that same group that killed and beyond all of that, they start asking Sayyidina Moses some question after question after question. What type of cow? What color cow? Etc., etc. Now, what's going to happen is that when they finally slaughtered the cow, right, when they finally... Uh, Okay, when, when Sayyidina Mulsa Islam tells them that Allah Ta'ala wants you to slaughter a cow, they respond that, are you making fun of us? Are you, is this a joke? We told you to ask Allah Ta'ala who killed the person, and you're telling us to slaughter a cow. This is a word for word transition. Are you, is this a joke? That's their adab. That's the way they talk to their nabi. Can you imagine? Can you, you, your heart would die if you saw any hadith, and you read any sahaba talking like that to the Prophet Islam. They say, are you kidding me? Is that really what Allah Ta'ala wants? We can't even imagine. Alhamdulillah, that's our sahaba. Right? That's how much other their lives ingrained into us. So they go, they say, is it a joke? And then Allah says, no, no, nobody's joking with you. <laughs> nobody's joking with you. So then they keep asking question after question after question. All right? So now let's take a look at this over here. So you in verse number, what verse have we reached now? 67? 
67. When Sayyidina Muhammad said to his community, Allah Ta'ala commands you to slaughter a buffalo. They said that, are you making fun of us? Is this a joke? He said, I seek refuge with Allah Ta'ala from doing such a thing. I seek refuge from that I would be a jahil person who would do such a thing, meaning as a nabi that I would joke about what Allah Ta'ala commanded. Right? That would be a terrible thing for a nabi to make fun of people based on the commandments of Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they said that, okay, same thing. That you go make dua for us to your Rabb. Again, they have no personal relationship with Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? You go make dua to your Rabb that he should tell us and explain to us clearly what is that bakara, what is that ox or buffalo that he wants us to slaughter. Okay? So Sayyidina Muhammad responded to them after Allah SWT revealed to him that Allah SWT is saying that the, that buffalo or ox should be neither too old nor too young or some middle age in between. Now do what you're being told to do. Right? Fafalu ma tu marun. Do what you've been commanded to do. But they didn't. They said again, Go and make dua again to your Rabb that he should manifest to he should make clear to us what color it should be. He should make clear to us what color it should be. So then again, Sayyidina Muslim, Dua Tawah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says that she should be a yellow, rich yellow in her color, and pleasing to those who gaze upon her. Alright? Okay? Then, now what happened? Then they said the same thing, that pray to us through your Lord, that Allah Ta'ala should make clear for us what sort of cow, what sort of buffalo she should be. For now we're confused. And if Allah wills, we will certainly take the right course. Now they're trying to make it sound, you know, and this is, see, this is what you see, this is the bad use of insha'Allah, which unfortunately some Muslims have. And when niyat nayyin, absolutely no intention whatsoever, they say insha'Allah. Whose sunnah is this? This is the sunnah of the Bani Israel. <laughs> so what do they say here? They say, وَإِنَّا insha'Allahu لَمُحْتَدُونَ That we will follow the hidayah, we will be rightly guided, if it is the will of Allah SWT. Alright? So now, then after another question, now then Sayyidina Musa responds to Allah Ta'ala saying there should be a buffalo or an ox which is not suitable for plowing the ground or being used to water the field. So that's normally the work of buffaloes and ox in English, not the work of a cow. And it should be completely intact and pure without any flaw and defect. So now they responded, now, I mean, how did they know that this was the right answer, Right? But they respond to Sayyidina Muhammad that now you have come up with the right answer. And they slaughtered, they went and found a buffalo and ox like that and they slaughtered it. Although it appeared, even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sang, right? That it seemed as if, it seemed as if they were pretty much not going to do it. They came this close to not following the commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, Allah ta'ala is going to mention that whole story. That when you killed a single person, and you started blaming one another for that. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was going to reveal who that murderer was, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to them that take a piece of that ox or buffalo that you slaughtered and place it, place it on uh, the corpse. And then the corpse was revived, the person came back to life, and then he said who was the person who murdered him. Right? He gave the name of the killer and then he died again. He gave the name of the killer and died again. And then Allah SWT says in Quran that this is how Allah SWT revives the dead and He shows you His signs so that you may understand. Okay, now let's pause over here. Those of us who think more rationally don't understand this. We would think that if Allah Ta'ala wants to revive somebody who's dead, Allah Ta'ala would just simply order him, get up, say who killed you, and I'll make you die again. Allah Ta'ala would not need to have, right, and this whole issue of animal slaughter, right, 
and then taking a piece of that body part and then putting it on the corpse, it sounds, you know, like the stuff probably, and that's coming also, some type of kala, jadu, some, right? This is way. Allah Ta'ala will do it. And Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala says in Quran, right? Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala said, not because I obviously lost myself in this one. Yeah, so Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala says in Quran, كَذَلَكَ يُحْيِ اللَّهُ الْمَوْتَ That this is how Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala, that's what the Quran is saying. This is how Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala revives the dead. Now certainly this is not how Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala revives the dead. When we are going to be in our graves and risen up on the Day of Judgment, for each and every one of the ox is not going to be slaughtered and a piece of that put on us and then we're going to stand up again. So what does it mean? Right? What is Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala doing here? So this is one of the, actually the lessons of Surah Baqarah. This is what in Arabic we call Amrun Ta'abudiyun. In Arabic, Amrun Ta'abudiyun means, Amr means a matter or an affair. Ta'abudi means to make a person realize that they're an abd. Make a person, in other words, sometimes Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala does things what we call khilaf ada Sometimes khilaf ada means against the norm. Many times those things that are against the norm are wondrous and amazing and spectacular. You call that a miracle, right? Such as parting the waters, right? Allah Ta'ala has done that for them already. Parting the water so they go through. Musa Islam strikes the staff and the twelve springs gush forth. Musa Islam tosses the staff, it becomes a serpent, he picks it up, it becomes a staff again. Right? Allah Ta'ala has shown them wondrous things. Here Allah Ta'ala is also trying to show them that, look, because you have chosen, let me explain it to you in Urdu first. When you have chosen so Allah Ta'ala aapko bhaat hi maamuni ki zariye se, jiz aap ki shaam ki mutabik hai, us ki zariye se usko zinda karenge. And as Allah Ta'ala is saying, He's still being merciful, He's still doing what they want. It's a continuous theme in Surah Bakr. He keeps doing what they want. Give us the vegetables, He gives it to them. Actually, for, for example today, we don't make this dua Ta'ala when somebody's murdered, we don't make this mutalaba that Allah Ta'ala should make the murderer somehow become alive. Right? So because these people were of a lowly nature. So rather than giving them a wondrous, he's given them plenty of wondrous, spectacular miracles. He's saying for people like you, and in this way, this process of questioning, that's how I'm going to revive the dead. And through such a lowly way as making you sacrifice an animal or put a piece of it on the person. This is not Allah Ta'ala's method. I mentioned to you because some of the people who are you know, skeptics and critics of Quran, they pluck out a verse. And it would work. They would say, oh, you know, look at the God you believe in. This is how he needs to revive the dead. He needs animal slaughter. You're no better than the voodoo people in South America. Right? So no, it's far from the shan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they should have shown you all the incredible miracles that came just a few passages ago in Surah Baqarah. But for such a lowly people, this is the lowly way. Now you understand? All right. So let's continue here now. What verse number are we on here? Seventy? Seventy-three. Now that's done. يُحْيِ اللَّهُ الْمَوْتَ وَيُرِيكُمْ آيَاتِهِ لَأَلَّكُمْ تَعْكِلُونَ And Allah Ta'ala shows you His signs so that you may become a person of aqal. So that you may reflect, you may realize. Here the realization was what I mentioned to you. That you should realize that Allah Ta'ala is capable of something, but if we keep asking, keep asking, then He's going to do it for us in a lowly type of way. After this now, after this their hearts hardened. After this so much that their hearts became as hard as rock, or even harder than rock. 
even harder than rock because Allah then says, and don't you see that indeed from rocks, springs can gush forth. Even from rocks, they have softness in them, they have possible sources of water in them. It doesn't mean a boulder, but it means a mountain, right? And sometimes this is meant to mention that the heart that is soft from it, tears gush forth. That is what being referred to. But when the heart becomes so hard, it becomes harder than a rock, it means that springs cannot gush forth from it, it means it can never cry in Tawbah. And this is one of the major things of the Bani Israel. Number one, they never made Tawbah, they never felt sad about Tawbah, and they never shed a tear in Tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so the reason why they never shed a tear in Tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was because their hearts had become even harder than rocks. Because sometimes you see that from rocks indeed, they can split open and will come gush forth from them water. And then you will see that indeed from these rocks, from these rocks, وَإِنَّا minha, I told this was coming from the rocks, lama yahbitu. There are those rocks, yahbitu, you can imagine that fall down like an avalanche. مِنْ خَشْيَةِ Remember I mentioned it was coming earlier, we did that human beings, Nas and Hijara were the fuel of Jahannam. So this is the ayah in the Quran. Now again, the rational person for them, the rational empiricists will say that a rock is inanimate. How can a rock fall down out of the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Well, for us actually in our deen, there's a scientific definition of animate and inanimate. And there's a spiritual definition of khalik and makhluk. And according to Quran, every single type of makhluk knows Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in its own way. So the rocks are inanimate according to science. They're not living objects. They're non-living objects. That's what inanimate means. They're non-living objects, right? They don't grow. They don't die, Right? But even a rock does the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, in Sahih Muslim, it is mentioned that there is a rock in Makkah, a boulder in Makkah Mukarramah that used to exchange salam with the Prophet when he used to go forth it. All of you know the Sahih Hadith about the date palm stump tree in Medina Manawra. So there are some rocks. Why were they falling out? Because of that ayah. When the rock heard that the rocks are going to be the fuel of Jahannam, that the fire of Jahannam is so intense, wood isn't going to be enough to power it. It's so intense that rocks are going to power it. What does it mean that wood will be obliterated? Today's fire cannot melt a rock. Jahannam's fire is going to melt rocks. You see, what fuels fire is something that is melted in it. When you put wood in a fireplace, the wood eventually gets disintegrated. And that process of disintegration provides the fuel for the fire. The fire of Jahannam is so intense that it can disintegrate boulders and mountains. And you'll keep feeding boulders and mountains. So some of the rocks on this earth, they got scared that what if they're going to be the ones who are put into Jahannam? This may be a spiritual explanation of the phenomenon known as avalanche. Allahu Akbar Kamira. So there are some rocks that fall down out of the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions to people, وَمَاللَّهُ بِغَافْلًا أَمَّا تَعْمَلُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not unknowing about those things that you do. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That do you still retain some hope that they will have iman? And there, indeed there is a group of them that has listened to the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but then they change it. They change it after they understood it. They were completely conscious and aware of what they were doing. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala suggests that you can't have hope from iman of such people. Right? You can't have hope of iman such people. When they meet the people who have iman, they say, we have iman. And when they retreat and go into seclusion with some of them, with some of their other friends, then they say that, you know, 
are you telling us and are you discoursing and are you discussing those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent upon you so that you can dispute with them, dispute with them, the yuhadjukum, that you can dispute and argue with them in the rabbikum, in the presence of the rabb. Afala taqilun, don't you have any sense? Don't you know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows everything that you keep secret and everything that you reveal? And from amongst them, there are also some people that ummiyun, la ya'lamun al-kitab. They are not lettered, they have not studied the scripture, they don't know the Torah. They're not their scholars. But what do they have? Illa amaniya. They just have wishes, they have hopes. Right? They have wishes and they have hopes. So what, what is the difference between these two groups? Alright, let me explain it to you this way. Allah SWT is mentioning this issue of hope. And I think I did this with you earlier as well. This concept of whom you can have hope in and whom you should lose hope in. And here Allah SWT is talking about His hope. Or rather maybe you can say Allah SWT is talking about Sayyidina Rasulullah how much hope that the Prophet should have from these people. Or we're going to have to move much faster. Okay. So here we are. Now, now do you fancy that they will believe in you? Alright. Now up till now, up till now, the whole purpose was trying to invite the Jews of Medina Munawrah to have Iman. Here, now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seems to be saying that, to addressing the Mu'mineen, Sahaba Ikram and the Prophet don't have hope in them that they will have Iman. Reason for this is that the Qur'an al-Kareem as it is in front of you is one complete text. However, in the life of the Prophet this was revealed in pieces. So up till now, the pieces that we studied were revealed earlier on. And then after a period of time passed and those Jews of Medina Munawar didn't accept Iman, notwithstanding all of this attempt by Allah subhanahu to remind them of the legacy and tradition of His mercy and puzzle upon them, then after that time period, then Allah subhanahu is telling the believers that, oh Muslim, do you really fancy and hope that they will have Iman in the deen? Right? So sometimes when you read in Quran, you don't know what is the time gap between each verse. And if you think that they occurred simultaneously, it wouldn't make sense. Okay, so there's a time gap between these two things that happened. All right. Okay, another thing it says the falat that could you use reason? Now again, reason is not being used here to make a person come to iman. Reason is being appeal to reason is being made to the Jews who believe in their scripture, and that scripture contains the description of the Prophet so just like I told you last time also, a Muslim should be told to use reason to follow what he already believes, which is called Qur'an al-Kareem and Sunnah Nabi al-Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Okay. Now that second group, Waminhum. So this was uh, verse number 78, right? Yes, 78. Now from amongst them, so from amongst the Bani Israel, but also from amongst the Jews of Medina Menorah, there's a group of Muyun, those who are unlettered, so they actually don't know. In other words, they genuinely don't know that their Torah describes the Prophet's coming. They don't know these things. And they were basically just as very important, because it's going to come a bit later, they were trusting their rabbis and scholars, right? And when their rabbis and scholars said, no, 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 this isn't that Prophet, they would lie. That's the tahrif. And the rabbi scholars knew that this was that last prophet, but they would tell their masses, because they don't want to lose their masses to convert to Islam, they will tell their masses that this isn't that last prophet. Like today sometimes, there's some people, not everyone, not the majority, but there's a small minority of people who are quote-unquote Western non-Muslim scholars of Islam, 
And they probably should, if they read the whole Quran, they should know better. But the way they present it to people on TV is that Islam is just terrorism. Right? So they know better. The people who are watching don't know any better. Right? They're ummiyin. They're like the illiterates of today. They have no idea. They only know Fox News Islam. Right? That's all that they know. So just like that at the time of at the time of the Bani Israel and at the time of sorry, at the time of the Jews of Medina Manawa, there was a group like that. La Yatlamul Kitab, they don't know their own Torah. They don't know their own Torah. Alright, so what's the gonna be the hukum for them? What's the hukum for them? Alright. For this group, the Jews of Medina Manawa, because they also have seen Sayyidina Rasulullah, they can see Sahaba, and we know from historical fact that most of the people of the Jews who actually became Sahaba came from this masses class, came from this Ummi class, didn't come from the rabbinical class. So they would have had friends who went, or family, or even in some cases, who had accepted the deen of Islam. So they should have learned about the deen of Islam from them. That woe unto those people, calamity unto those people who write the book with their own hands. Means they change it. They write whatever they want, they change the Torah. Actually what the rabbis did, they went back and they got worried that let's say these masses ever decide to pick it up, then they'll find out what we've been hiding from them, so they went and they changed it. So the Quran also documents incidents of scriptural you know, adulteration. And that's why we don't accept that the scriptures as they claim that they have them with them today are accurate and are original. And what would they say? Then they would say that this is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What they wrote with their own hands. And what did they do? They actually traded the golden revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a paltry sum for a small price. May Allah, and for again, that woe and calamity upon them based on what they wrote with their own hands. And woe and calamity and travesty be upon them because of that which they used to do. And what they earned out of this. They used to say, and they used to say that Lantamasana, that the, the, the fire, Jahannam, will never ever touch us. Illa ayama ma'duda. That even if we go to Jahannam, we'll only go for a particular period of time. This could be referring to that earlier group of Jews who worshipped the cat, the golden statue for 40 days and nights when, say, the Mosaisam was away, that maybe we'll only be punished for 40 days. This is, however, broadly meant that the Jews felt that, you know, we're the chosen people, ultimately we are guaranteed Jannah. So no matter what we really do, even if we end up having to go to Jahannam, it will only be for a small period of time. So what does Allah to respond to them? That do, Have you taken from Allah Sponsor some type of promise on this issue? Right? Do you have some promise from Allah Sponsor on this issue that you're only going to go to Jahannam for a short period of time? And again, this is something that some of the Muslims today feel. They say the same thing. They say that, you know... You know, I found people who were quite openly and blatantly non-practicing in the sense that they may not, in terms of basics like salah, zakah, right? Fasting, Ramadan. But they feel, to Jannat Mijangi. And you say, Kyun Kiki Mechiyun. Right? Now, being a good person and being a good Muslim, these are two separate things, right? Just like being a good person and being a good doctor are two separate things. If I said that I'm going to get a degree from Harvard Medical School, and you say, on what basis? I said, I'm a nice guy. You say, look, being a nice guy is one thing, and being an accomplished doctor is something else. Being a good doctor is something else. I say, but isn't niceness enough for that? And you, you tell me, no. You will tell me that being nice and good, I'm not saying I am, but let's say somebody said, being nice and kind and sweet and good is not good enough to be a doctor. You would say that. So 
So if it's not, so I said, okay, what do I have to do to be a doctor? You say you'll have to study years of biology and chemistry in high school. Then at least if you're in America, you have to do a proper four-year undergraduate degree, pre-med. Then you'll have to go to medical school for four years. And then you'll have to do a five-year residency. Or you could also just go to Shakespeare Medical College for five years. <laughs> right? But you'll have to do something. Right? You'll have to do something. So why can't I say the same thing about being a jannati? Right? If being a doctor on this earth would require, being a doctor on this earth for 60 years requires years of labor and hard work, then being a jannati for all eternity should require about 40, 50, 60 years of labor and hard work. Right? If being a nice guy won't cut it and won't enable you to be a doctor on this earth, what makes you think it's going to cut it and make you a jannati for all of eternity? Right? But so, so we should, there, there are people like us. And, and, and generally the theme of Surah Baqarah is no Muslim should say the things that the, the Bani Israel used to say. This is their statement. That, you know, even if I go to Jahannam, I'll just go for a short period of time, eventually I go to Jannah. So that's automatically we should think that if they were saying it, it shouldn't be something that we should say. Right? Okay, so have you taken a pledge from Allah SWT that Allah Ta'ala will not go against the promise? Or do you say about Allah SWT those things that you don't know? Right? But know that indeed that person who commits any type of sin and transgression, and then he's surrounded by his sin and leads a life of sin, that such a person will become the companion and friend of Jahannam, and they will live in there forever. And it shows them that that person who repeatedly, regularly does sin tries to console themselves that they won't have to go into Jahannam. Now Allah Ta'ala shifts back to the people of Iman. And those people who have Iman and do ibadat and righteous works, Ula'ika Ashabul Jannah, they're the people of, they're the companions and friends and dwellers and residents of heaven. Hum fiha khaladun, they will dwell there in forever. Now remember that time that when we took the pledge and covenant from the Bani Israel, that they would not worship anything, la ta'buduna illallah, that they would not worship anything except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number two, وَبِلْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا وَذِلْقُرْبَى وَالْيَتَامَى وَالْمَسَاكِينَ That they would do ihsan. They would treat well. Who? First of all, the walidain. So the two parents. So this is one of the common teachings of the deen of Islam. That you have to be kind to your parents. Notice the word here is ihsan. The word is not obedience. You will not find anywhere in the Quran where the word obedience is used. Obedience is used for Allah subhanahu wa the Prophet and for deen. Kindness, respect, service, consideration, khidmat, ihsan, these are what you do for parents. And when parents ask you to do something that is in your ability and it doesn't require going against the deen, then obviously you listen to it and you do that because that's your khidmat for them. But if parents ask you to do something that goes against a fard or a wajib or even a sunnah, even an established sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam, there is no obedience to parents in such an issue. I can explain to you very simply. Who has a greater level, parents or Allah? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So clearly in terms of farz and wajib, if Allah ta'ala says to do it, parents say not to do it, you're going to follow Allah and do the farz and wajib. Who is greater rank, parents or Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Sayyidina, this is the greatest thing that the Sahaba they used to say. They used to say that may my parents, or sometimes they used to say, Abik, may my father be sacrificed on you, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sayyidina went out in Badr and was ready to kill his own father because his father came on the side of the enemy. So who is greater, parents or Nabi? 
Nabi Akram Sunnah. So if the Nabi is one thing and parents need to do something else, you have to follow the Sunnah. Yes, there's some optional Sunnah, such as like wearing the turban, that's an optional Sunnah. So the Prophet didn't tell you to do that. So if, the Prophet, if your parents tell you don't wear a turban in front of us, you shouldn't wear a turban in front of them. If they tell you don't wear a turban at all, you shouldn't wear a turban in front of them. <laughs> As an example, I'm giving you an example. Right? Okay. But those things that are farad and wajib and established sunnah, there's no obedience to parents. There's love, kindness, respect, service, ihsan. And that itself parents shouldn't feel. I have not lowered the level of parents in any way. Ihsan, muhsinin, is a word that Allah Ta'ala uses for how we're supposed to behave with Him. In the Allah, yuhibbul muhsinin. Allah Ta'ala loves those who have ihsan and who excellently perform their duties of ubudhiyya and worship. So to have ihsan with the parents. Alright. You can translate in simple English and do good to your parents. Do good to your parents. Be good with your parents. Alright? Okay. Dilkurba means relatives. Yatama means orphans. Masakin means poor people. nasi husna. And you should speak, not just to believers, to all human beings. nasi husna. You should speak to all human beings in noble and beautiful speech. This is part of the Quranic adab and akhlaq. Muslims should be soft-spoken, well-spoken, kind-spoken, even with an unbeliever. The nas with all of humanity. That you should be firmly established on the prayer and you should offer and pay your zakat. And then you turn your back on this. Except a few from you. And you are people of i'rad. Okay, i'rad means that you spurn. Now what's going on now? That this, what I just said right now, this is now starting a second story. This is starting a second story. This is going back to, guess who? Bani Israel. What you're sharing now in Surah Bakr is Allah Ta'ala is interspersing it. Talking about Bani Israel, then addressing Mu'minin. Then going back to Bani Israel, then addressing Mu'minin. Alright? So now this is talking about yet another thing that happened in the Bani Israel. And that is that Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala had given them three commandments to do. One was that they shouldn't shed blood. Number two, that they shouldn't put people into exile. And number three that if a prisoner comes, that they shouldn't they should release that prisoner even if they have to spend on it. Right? They should try to release their prisoners even if they have to spend on it. So what they're going to do is they're going to break the first two commands and they're going to do the third command but they're going to break the first two. So breaking the first two, that is what Allah subhanahu is referring to at the end of this first number, which is 83. Okay. Now it comes again, that when we took the pledge and the covenant from the Bani Israel, that they would not spill blood, that they would not exile people from their homes, then they were firm on this, they were firm on this, you were firm on this rather we should say, you were firm on this and you were people who witnessed this. So you firmly made this pledge and you witnessed it yourself. You firmly made this pledge and you witnessed it yourself. How have you translated it here? Then you agreed being yourselves the witnesses. All right. Now, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? Thumma antum ha'ula'i. And then you very same people who made this pledge, 
تَقْتُلُونَ أَنفُسَكُمْ You're killing one another. وَتُخْرِجُونَ فَرِيكَمْ مِنْكُمْ And you're expelling one group of you from their homes. تَظَاهَرُونَ عَلَيْهِمْ بِالْإِثْمِ وَالْأُدْوَانِ And you've clearly manifested in you sin and rebellion and enmity and disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now comes the third part, وَإِنْ يَأْتُوكُمْ أُسَارَ If they come, أُسَارَ is the plural of Asir's prisoners. If prisoners come to you, تُفَادُوهُمْ Tafadu means to free them. It's you remember fidya to pay some ransom, basically, to free them. Wahum muharramun alaykum, ikhrajuhum, and exiling them had been made haram upon you earlier. Afatuminuna bebaad al kitabi wa takfurun bebaad. So are you believing in part of the book and disbelieving in part of it? In other words, that you fulfilled the third command, but you break the first two commands. In other words, you're picking and choosing. So this line again is for us to think about. This line, أَفَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِبَعْضِ الْكِتَابِ وَتَكْفُرُونَ بِبَعْضِ Do you want to follow part of the Qur'an but leave part of it? Do you pay zakat but don't praise the salah? Do you like to go for hajj but don't pray salah? Do you like to tell your children to respect you but you yourself don't respect Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So this is one of the major lines of Qur'an. And it, you know, in Christianity they call this, there's a sect of Christianity called Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholicism, and the Catholics have a term for this, they call it a cafeteria Catholic. That you take your tray and all of Catholicism is there for you in the cafeteria, and whatever you like you put in your tray, and what you don't like you leave it there on the server. For your, in your terms, how would you put this? It's, uh, you know, buffet, huh? buffet Islam. You take what you like, and you leave what you don't like. Buffet. Right? Yes. That's how you say it in Pakistani English. Right? That's uh, it, no? So you shouldn't do that. أَفَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِبَعْضِ الْكِتَابِ وَتَكْفَرُونَ بِبَعْضِ And it's very important to see what the words Allah is saying. He's not saying, do you follow it and leave it? He's saying, you're following it is your iman in it, and you're leaving it is your kufr in it. Now you tell me, all of us know that if you don't believe in one verse of Quran, you can't be a Muslim. If a Muslim says, I believe all of this is the word of Allah except Surah Al-Imran verse 23. I'll say, you can't be a Muslim. Just like if you go to university and say, okay, these are the conditions you've put in the student handbook. I'll follow, but I'm not, you know, you guys never signed that stuff anyway. But let's say you sent it back saying, I signed except 23. They'd say, here's your enrollment and here we refund your deposit. That's what would happen, right? It's amazing how much we accept that you have rules and procedures in this world. But you don't let Allah Ta'ala have rules and procedures over you. Give you a better example when you work. That's a more strict example, right? Because you're getting money there. So let's say that you're, you're, you get your new boss and he tells you this is your, he emails you the job description, the terms of reference, the TOR for your position. And you shoot him back an email and say that, dear sir, I accept points 1 to 8, but 9, 11, and 13 I don't accept and I accept the others. He'll email you right back and say, go back to HR, collect your, take an exit interview, and give us back our pass, Josh Hamash. You let your boss have that power over you. You don't think Allah Ta'ala should have that power over you? Is Allah Ta'ala alone that being that you think you can pick and choose whatever you like and leave what you don't like? But the boss tells you to do something you don't like, you do it anyway? For what? For 50,000 rupees a month? Hmm? For 100,000 rupees a month? So for 100,000 rupees a month, you're willing to do a few things you don't like. And for all of eternal Jannah, you're not willing to do a few things you don't like? Allah Akbar. Something to think about. Something to think about. Who is our Rabb then? Hmm? Who are we treating like a Rabb? Allah or the employer? مَنْ يَفْأَلْ ذَلَكَ مِنْكُمْ إِلَّا 
خِزْيٌ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا Whomsoever from you does this. And see now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could be talking literally to the Bani Israel, but it also has, remember I told you the Nab, create the umum and the mana. He's talking to anyone who is reading this Qur'an or to whom this Qur'an is addressed. And go back, Ya Yuhannas, this Qur'an is addressed to all of humanity. Anyone from humanity who wants to take part of the book and leave part of the book, right? So what can happen? They should expect nothing else other than khizyun, which means, you know, he's translated disgrace, disgrace, abasement, lowliness. Lowliness in this life of this world. وَيَوْمُ qiyama And on the day of judgment, what will happen? يُرَدُّونَ إِلَىٰ أَشَدِّ الْأَذَابِ You will be reverted back and surrendered into the most severe of punishments. وَمَا اللَّهُ بِغَافِلٍ أَمَّا تَعْمُلُونَ And know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does, is not unknowing of even the slightest thing that you do. There's nothing you're going to do that escapes Him. أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ اشْتَرُوا الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا بِالْآخِرَةِ These are those people who decided to prefer this world over the next. So I told you last time, always prefer deen over dunya. Always prefer akhirah over dunya. Always prefer Allah over ghairullah. Always prefer the farz and wajib over any temptation, desire you may have. Always prefer sunnah, lifestyle, over any other fashion, culture, lifestyle that the society has to offer. It's a choice. And the choice has to be made on the basis of a preference. Those who make their preferences for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah ta'ala will select them and prefer them for His jannah. Then the punishment will never ever even be slightly relaxed for them. There will be no one and nothing that can help them in their punishment. Then we brought Sayyidina Musa Islam the book, the scripture. And then we sent after him, continually sent after him prophets. So what happens here is that from Sayyidina Musa Islam to Sayyidina Isa Islam, there's a long continual chain of Anbiya. Some Ulama of Tasir have written thousands of Anbiya from Sayyidina Musa Islam to Isa Islam. Then it stops at Isa Islam. You know, Isa Islam is the second last prophet. Then there's a gap of about 600 years, right? And then Sayyidina Rasulullah Khatam and Nabiin, the last and final messenger and prophet. So here is what saying that between Musa Islam and Isa Islam, we sent a continual series of Anbiya. Many, many names are going to be mentioned here. Wa'atayna Isa ibn Maryam al So we start with the last one. That Isa ibn Maryam, he said the son of Maryam was given clear signs. And we helped him with the sacred spirit, which means the angel Jibreel alayhi salam. And then uh, it came to you, Rasulullah bima la tahwa anfusakum mustakbartum. Then when the prophets came to you with those things that you didn't want, then what did you do? When the prophets came to you with things that you didn't want, you adopted takumbar. Hmm? You adopted arrogance. You chose not to follow that purpose. And some of you chose to falsify them and said that they're false prophets. And some of you, and some of you decided to kill them. Some of you decided to kill them. Now this isn't addressed to the Bani Israel, this is addressed to the Jews of Medina. Now if nothing else, you would think that if it's a Jew of Medina, you would think that there's no way that this person, Muhammad ibn Abdullah could know our whole history. If nothing else, Allah Ta'ala is giving so much detail in Surah Baqarah to make the Jews realize that this has to be revelation. This person, I mean, this revelation is mentioning each and every single thing that we did in such great detail. This is like our old secret history books that we keep in the locked closet. We don't want anybody to read our dirty secrets. And it's all coming out like this. So there's no way that this person could not be a prophet. Only Allah could have known this. And that's what the Jews of Medina felt. 
And that is always know that that is the worst type of kufr. To know Allah, to believe in Allah, to know the haq as haq and not do it. And again, that's our danger. That's what they put in Quran for the Muslims. Because we are Muslims, we know the haq. We are Muslim. We believe in Quran, we believe in the haq. And if we still don't do it, we are reaching that level of the Bani Israel. Our nisbat goes back to them. So what do they say now? What they do, they offer something in their defense. Not their defense, but they say, I mean, it's not really defense, it's kind of like, uh, you know, arrogant mockery, pride. They say that our hearts have a veil over them or have some type of shroud over them. Right? Let's see what he has translated as. What does he say? Veils. Okay. We have some shroud or veils over us, our heart. What does it mean? That this wahi revelation comes on the kalb. I keep showing you that. Always remember the kalb. Every time anything has to do with how a human being knows Allah, loves Allah, understands Allah, what's the word that's going to come in Quran? Kalb. Even the Bani Israel knew it. <laughs> this is our students will understand this. <laughs> Even Bani Israel zikr kalbi ko mangte the. That our spiritual hearts have a veil over them. It means that, yes, fine, this way, but there's like retorting. It's not going to affect us. You know, that event, when you meet a really hardcore progressive secular Muslim today, they say the same thing. You know, I remember once in New York, there was one auntie, and she jokingly told my mother that, that my mother should leave me with them for a couple of weeks. And she said, And my brother, I wasn't there, my brother heard that, and my brother told her, my older brother, he told her that if we leave him with you, <laughs> all of you, <laughs> and so she shot back with this. She said, she said, she shot back with something like this. It means in English, we're impervious. That's the fancy English word, I don't know if you, we're impenetrable. That's how she shot back. She said, no, That's what she said. That's what the Bani Israel are saying. Allahu Akbar. And who are they saying it to? <laughs> Sayyidina Musa Islam saying it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in some sense. It's almost like they're saying it actually to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does He say back to them? Okay, first Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Okay, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent His la'nat, His curse upon them due to their kufr. Okay, now I've explained this to you, I haven't explained to you yet here in this gathering. La'na means on the English, He is probably translated as curse. Has He translated as curse? Okay. It's not curse in the sense that me and you curse. I've explained this to you many times, those of you who heard me give talks before. Allah ta'ala dete. La'na in Arabic, the literal meaning of la'na when a human being does it means curse. But when the word comes for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when that verb, the subject of the verb, la'na, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it means that Allah ta'ala takes a person and puts them outside the reach of their mercy. Because His mercy was infinite. And again, you saw examples of that with the Bani Israel. So He's taking them out of the infinite reach of His mercy, due to their kufr. فَقَلِيلًا مَا يُؤْمِنُونَ And there are very few of them, very few of them are going to believe. But still, so this is an ishar to the Prophet, you have to search for those qalil. Right? Because you never know who they are. You never know who they are. They're always going to be few. They're always going to be a few. So the 
job of the Anbiya and all of those who follow the Anbiya on that mission of Dawah, right, is to search for those fear. Okay. وَلَمَا جَاءَهُمْ كِتَابٌ مِّنْ إِنْدِ اللَّهِ مُصَدِّقٌ لِمَامَاهُمْ And when the book, yani Qur'an al-Kareem, came to them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and verifying and confirming what they already had with them. And before that, before that they were in a state in which they were in a state of victory. On those people who disbelieved. فَلَمَّا جَاءُهُمْ مَا عَرَفُوا كَفَرُوا بِهِ and then what came, when it came down to them, that which they already knew, because it was confirming what they already had, right? They decided to disbelieve in it. Specifically, it's talking also about Sayyidina Rasulullah It can mean the book, but it can also mean the Prophet For again it comes in فَلَعْنَتُ al kafirin. Then Allah subhanahu wa decree of placing outside of His mercy comes upon such high level unbelievers. And terrible is that which they have purchased, Right? Instead of they've sold their iman, this, this is basically the eye that you can say is the English of heaven, they sold their souls. It's a terrible thing for which they have sold their souls for. Right? In other words, they sold their souls for the sake of this dunya. Alright? And what are they doing? And they're denying that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed in terms of rebellion. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent it down upon them in fadlihi alaman yasha'u. And he sends it upon whomsoever he wants, min ibadi, from amongst his servants. Basically what's going on is the Jews are upset that why did the Prophet get revelation? We should have gotten it. We should have gotten the Quran or somebody from the legacy of Sayyidina Ishaq some should have gotten the Quran. So they're upset. So Allah subhanahu wa is saying, no, this is the will and wish and decree of Allah subhanahu wa He sends upon it whom he so will. Faba'u, and then they return, bi ala ghadab. Again, now you have this other thing, that they are coming with this notion of Allah subhanahu anger upon them. Ghadab ala ghadab means, like you say a nice way, nur ala nur. Ghadab ala ghadab means anger upon anger of Allah subhanahu Allah tells anger upon anger, double dose of anger. Double dose of anger has come upon them. Wal-kafirina adabun muhin. Now you had another word here. You had adim and you had alim. Now you have yet another word here, which is muhin. What does it mean? So now you have... For the unbelievers, not only will they have an adim and alim on punishment, they have muhin. Muhin means disgracing. Disgracing. Like you say tohin, that's a word that you have, right? So muhin is coming from something similar, same source, same root word as tohin. All right. When it is said to them to have belief in that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent on upon you, they say that should we believe in that thing that is sent upon us and disobey? We, we, do, we believe only in that which was sent upon us and we disobey. And we disbelieve bima wara'uhu and whatever is other than that. And as we know, we only believe what was sent down upon us. Again, I told you this many times, this was their own tribal lineage and their own affiliation. But this is the haq that is confirming what you already have. But what, so say to them, Same thing, that why do you then slay the prophets before if you were really believers? So if you claim, in other words, that we believe in what was sent down on us only, then if you believed in what was sent down on you, why did you kill those prophets that brought it to you? So you didn't even believe in that. That's what I was telling them. You didn't even really believe in that. Okay. Then Sayyidina Musa came to them with clear and manifest signs. And they took the ijlam in ba'dihi, and they took, that's an old story, that they took that gold statue of a calf as uh, an object of worship. Bantum dhalimun, and you were unjust and transgressors. And then when we took the pledge from you, meaning the Bani Israel, and then we raised upon you the mountain of Tur, that I've also done for you as well, right? Then you should have taken what we had given you, and you should 
grabbed it with strength and you should have listened and submitted to it. But what did you say? So they shot back. They used to like shoot back and they would talk back to Allah What did you say? Allah Ta'ala said, Batamizi karte. What would they say? Sametna, we hear wa asena. Islam teaches says Sametna wa ata'na, that we hear and obey. They're saying we hear and we disobey. Allah Akbar. We hear and disobey. When do we do that? When we listen to Adhan and don't pray? Every time you hear the Adhan and you don't pray, you actually did Sametna wa asena. And you did it in act, not even in words, right? So who are the people who hear and don't obey? That was the Bani Israel. That's supposed to be me and you, right? That's supposed to be me and you. Or if we hear a hadith of the Prophet and we don't follow it, that's Sametna wa Asayna. We hear a hukum of Quran, we don't follow it, Sametna wa Asayna. So now what happened is the love for that calf filled up their heart. So what's in their heart? What's in their spiritual heart if not the love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? It filled up their heart with kufr. Alright, so that is what is inside their kalb. Alright, that what their iman says is that, they, that, that this thing that they say that we only believe in what was revealed to you, this is a terrible thing. This is a terrible iman, a terrible view that you should have in kuntum mu'minin if you are truly believers. Then we continue that if... Uh, Okay. okay, if Jannat was really for you, if that eternal abode of the Akhirat was that belonged to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if it was only exclusively for you, nas, other than all of the rest of humanity, then what you should do, then you should hope for death. If you think that you're going to go to Jannah guaranteed when you die, and you alone are that sacred special community that are going to go to Jannah, then you should want to die, right? You should want to die. You should be waiting for death to overcome you. What are you scared of? Right? And this is partly, you know, I mean, partly also specifically uh, talking, referring back again to that incident that they were refusing to engage into the jihad to go into Jerusalem. All right. Well, and then you will never, ever, ever yearn for that death. Why? Because what have you already sent in front of you? You know what you've sent in front of you. All of these sins and killing prophets and you don't want to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wallahu alimun bidhalameen, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all knowing of, over his transgressors and the wrongdoers. Alright. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the believers that you will find that these people who claim that Jannah is reserved exclusively from them, they're the ones who are the most greedy from humanity on life. They want to live forever. And even if they were to end, uh, uh, even more than the people who are idol worshippers. And each of them would love that they could live for 1,000 years. And you have that today also, people who are not prepared for Akhirah, they want to keep living. Cryogenics, and they're just scared about death. And even if in Pakistan the life expectancy becomes 72 or 75, they're still scared. And all types of longevity, right? And longevity, I can't even remember myself now, which one, how do you pronounce it, right? But all types of herbal medicines, and they want to prolong their life. Whereas in the deen of Islam, the Muslim feeling is after you're 60, when you're about your middle, mid-60s, you should be ready enough to go, that you're not going to do anything to make yourself pass away. But by the time you hit your mid-60s, because Sayyidina you know, Rasulullah passed away when you're 63, so when you hit your mid-60s, you're yearning to go. You're waiting to go. You're just hoping that Allah SWT calls you. That's the way deen of Islam prepares a human being. A person who lived according to Quran and Sunnah from their age of maturity, by the time they hit their mid-60s, they are in a state of hope and yearning. And you will find these people, when they are in their mid-60s, they are terrified of death. Terrified. 
and their physical ailments lead them to actual psychological problems. They get terrified when they go to a hospital. They're, they're shaken up by it. They're shaken up. Even if it's a small thing, they're shaken up. Why? Because they don't want to die. They don't want to die. And the Muslim, when he hits his mid-60s, again, not that he wants to die in a bad way, but he's ready. You can take him to the hospital, he says, okay, inshallah, just take me on iman. That's why he's only worried about his iman. He's, or she is only worried that her iman will last until she dies. That's how a person ends up in their mid-60s after spending a good 40, 50 years solid on Qur'an and Sunnah. Alright. And they will not find anybody to save them from the punishment. Uh, they will not find anybody who will be able to save them from that punishment in the Akhirah. Alright. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Basirun And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all aware of each and everything that you do. Say, my beloved Muslims, that that person who is an enemy to Jibrail. Okay, now what's going on over here? The Jews, when they found out that Sayyidina Jibreel, the angel Jibreel was the one who was bringing the revelation to the Prophet, they said, oh, oh, oh. They, they found, now there's Jews in Medina. Now somebody is Jews in Medina. They said, oh, well, you're not going to believe in this. Why? Because they said that Jibreel is our enemy. Allahu Akbar. This is the Jews of Medina for you. <laughs> you should take Shaitan as your enemy. Remember there was a gathering, all the angels in Iblis. And who was the leader of all of the angels? Jibreel. So they thought Jibreel was their enemy. And so they said that if it's the angel Jibreel's bringing this revelation, we don't accept it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, Kul, say my beloved Mr. Sam, that that person who says that they are an enemy to Jibreel alayhi salam, فَإِنَّهُ نَزَّلُهُ عَلَىٰ قَلْبِكَ Know that this Qur'an, don't be fooled by the messenger. It's come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not that Jibreel is coming up with revelation on his own. It's come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the permission and order and hukum of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And where did it come? Ala qalbik. Qalb. The baragiyana. Qalb. Spiritual heart. It's where all the feelings and communications come. So that wahi comes on the heart of the Prophet It's bearing, confirming what you already have with you. Wahudan and a guidance for Bushra and a glad tiny with mu'minin for the believers. Mankana adumun lillahi. And in fact, anybody with means there's anybody who's an enemy to Jibreel is actually an enemy to Allah Spanta. Wa malaikati and all the angels. Wa rusudahi and all of the prophets and messengers. Wa Jibreel wa Mikal. Why is Mikal be mentioning here? Because the Jews said we like Mikal. So if the revelation had come from Mikal, we would have accepted it. That's what they said. Allah Akbar. Ajeeb. <laughs> right? So Allah Ta'ala, that's why from all the malaika, because they've come in plural before, singles out Jibreel and Mikal to say, These two are the same group. <laughs> you cannot say that I have enmity toward Jibreel and friendship with Mikal. And again, you would never understand this passage unless you had hadith. If you ask anybody who doesn't accept hadith, why is Mikal coming here when the word malaika is already there, includes all the angels? Why are these two mentioned by name? They have no idea. <laughs> no idea. Right? فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ أَدُومٌ لِلْكَافِرِينَ Allah is saying, you have enmity towards Jibreel, I have enmity towards you. You have enmity towards my Anbiya, and you kill them, I have enmity towards you. Alright. وَلَكَدْ أَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ آيَةٍ بَيِّنَاتٍ Indeed, Allah SWT has revealed upon them clear and manifest verses of revelation and signs. And you should not disbelieve, nobody disbelieves in them except for the Fasikun, except for the people of fisk, people of impiety, and people of vulgarity, and people of disobedience. Whenever they make a pledge, they discard and renege that, a group of them discards and reneges that pledge. And indeed the majority of them aren't going to believe. Again, this is a tasalli on the Prophet telling the Prophet that look, 
after some time had elapsed, and don't worry, the majority of the Jews I mean, aren't going to believe. So if you got that Khalil, if you feel that now a few of them have come, Quran said it, Khalil, a few of them would believe. You've got them. You've got Sayyidina Salman al-Farsir, and you've got those other former Jews and the Sahaba. Now know the vast majority of them aren't going to believe. All right. Then when the process, when, when the messengers come, came to them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, confirming that which they had, then they renounced, a group of them renounced, and they, they turned their back on those people upon whom the book had been revealed to. Which book? This is talking about their own book. Kitab Allahi Wara'adhuhuri. It means they cast, literally means they cast their own Torah behind their back. It means they discard it. In other words, what Allah is saying simply is that when you reject the Qur'an which confirms what you have, you're also rejecting what you had. When you reject the confirmation message, right? when you don't confirm your ticket, it's not just that you rejected the confirmation, you rejected the ticket also. That's what Allah is saying. You've actually cast your Torah behind your back as well. You're no longer Ahl Torah. You're no longer Ahl Kitab. It's going to come later. I'm going to explain to you some other day what, who the Ahl Kitab were and are there any left and who they are and what their Ahkam are. But here clearly, if Allah Ta'ala says in Qur'an, Kitab Allahi wara'a zuhurim, the book of Allah is cast behind their back, can you call such people Ahli Kitab? Ahli Kitab means the people of the book. This is saying that they have taken the book and cast it behind their back. That's what Allah is saying in Qur'an. So, you're not going to call them Ahli Kitab. As if they never knew the original message in the first place, let alone would they accept the confirmation. Then what happens here is that We are now on Surah Bakrah, verse number 102. This is an issue of Sayyidina Sulaiman al-Islam. The Jews did not believe that Sayyidina Sulaiman al-Islam was innocent as a prophet. <coughs> <laughs> and they actually accused that Sayyidina Sulaiman was guilty of doing magic. So the story behind this, and the Jews in Medina were saying the same thing to the Prophet and making a mockery of the Quran when the Quran mentioned that Sayyidina Sulaiman was a prophet. So the story behind this is that the Quran reveals this verse, verse number 102, to show that Sayyidina Sulaiman is ma'sum, he is free and innocent from any error and any sin that they attribute to him. And he himself did not do magic, but at his time, there were some shayateen who lived. And so let's just do the transition that they followed. But the shayateen used to teach them in the reign of Sulaiman. And it was not Sulaiman who had become an unbeliever, but rather the shayateen who became unbelievers by means of how, what they used to teach the people of magic, and but by means of what they te- teach people of magic. All right. Now what happens here is that at, magic predates the time of Sayyidina Sulaiman and we know for sure, at least if nothing else, there are magicians in the time of Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. Uh, and the incident of the magicians in the time of Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam is surah number 20, verse number 66. And that mentions specifically min sihrihim, the magic of the magicians of those, those magicians who were trying to compete with Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. Right? And you can look at it elsewhere again in surah number 7, verse 116, and surah number 20, verses 67 to 69. So, magic predates Sayyidina Sulaiman It also goes all the way up to the time of the Prophet And in fact, Imam Bukhari, Imam Sahih, has actually made a whole bab called Bab al-Sihr, in which he has gathered hadith that talk about the magic that was done on the Prophet One hadith actually mentions a particular type of magic that was done on the Prophet in Sahih Bukhari. It is quite a long 
uh, hadith, but it also mentions as this issue uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cures the Prophet I just mentioned that last part to you, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cures the Prophet the Prophet said, Kad afani Allahu wa shafani, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forgiven me, and Allah ta'ala has, Allah ta'ala sent his softness upon me, and Allah ta'ala has cured me of this magic. So the clear thing I want to mention is, number one, that magic does exist. Second thing I want to mention is that magic predated Sulaiman al-Islam and also existed at the time of the Prophet and also exists up till today. Third thing I want to mention is that magic is cured by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even that level, of what could be the highest level of magic in history would be that type of magic that was done on the greatest creation, the Prophet There could be no more evil magic than that and no more quote-unquote powerful magic than that. Now don't get too Harry Potter about magic. That's also what I'm going to try to show you. This is not wizards and, you know, casting spells. It's not like that. It's quite a base stuff and we're going to show you that when we return to the Quran. Okay? But Sahih Bukhari is making it clear that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cured the Prophet And how did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cure the Prophet Was there any particular amal he did? No. Was there any counter spell that he did? No. Was there any quote-unquote good magic that he used? No. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cured him directly. And the Quran is going to explain that to you as well momentarily. So what you have here is that now you have mentioned here, and, and let's go back to the translation. So they were teaching people magic and what had been sent down to the two angels, Harut and Marut in Babylon. Okay, now Babylon was an ancient place, an ancient community, and in Babylon, before these two angels came, magic was prevalent. And there were already practitioners of magic. So actually, Allah subhanahu sent these two angels, Harut and Marut, as a form of hidayah, to go and teach people what is magic and what is not magic, and then to tell them that magic was wrong for them. Shaykh Ashraf Ali likens this to the teaching of the ulama by the ulama of ancient philosophy. And they would teach ancient Greek philosophy, especially ancient Greek metaphysics. There's no problem with ancient Greek logic and other parts of their philosophy. But ancient Greek metaphysics, which had different beliefs about gods and stuff, they would teach that to people to show them to separate out the false and show them what that was. More like you can think today somebody may teach Western secular liberal philosophy, not because they're trying to convert somebody to atheism, but they want a person to know what atheism is so that they can better identify their falsehood. Or like some of our students here claim that they study finance with that intention, that they don't want to engage in interest, but they're learning or studying or teaching finance because they want to be able to identify and know exactly what finance is so they can protect themselves from the evil in that. So the angels were sent down for that purpose. And that's why it says that and these two did not teach anyone what magic. They're teaching people what magic is. They're not teaching people to practice magic. You see, for example, if you, if you tell somebody magic is haram, you have to know what exactly magic is so that you can stay away from it. So it's a very big misconception people have when they read the translation because the English reads as if they were teaching them to practice. They're not teaching them to practice magic. They were teaching them what magic is. And they would first say to them, we are but a trial, so don't become an unbeliever. And it was, once you know what magic is, that's going to be a test on you. Now you could use it. Just like when you know what finance is, you could engage in interest. You could design interest-bearing financial instruments. You'll be able to do that. It'll be a test on you now. And Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan or whichever one of those isn't bankrupt yet is going to offer you tens of thousands of dollars to do so. It'll be a test for you. There will be worldly incentives now for you to use that knowledge. All right? Okay. That's what the angels were doing. Then these unbelievers used to learn from them. That with which... Now what is magic? So Allah Ta'ala here is giving one example of what black magic can do. 
fascinating what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is worth reading actually in the, Quran, in the Arabic original. What did they learn? فَيَتَعَلَّمُونَ مِنْهُمَا مَا يُفَرِّقُونَ بِهِ بَيْنَ الْمَرْءِ وَزَوْجِهِ They learn what was the black magic. What can black magic do? So the angels are saying, look, just like what can interest do? It can devastate an economy. What can black magic do? It can devastate a marriage. It can separate. Words of Quran can cause separation between a man and his wife. In hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah in Sahih Muslim, this is in Sahih Muslim, the Prophet said that it's a long hadith, but shaitan basically gets a report from all of the shaitan. And one shaitan comes to him and says that I went to two people, مَا تَرَكْتُ imra'atihi. I went to the two of them and I didn't leave them until I'd separated him and his wife. And shaitan gives him like a shabbas. Ni'ma anta, he says. You need to see shabasha. <laughs> shaitan congratulates that person. So both Quran and Hadith, there's zabardas mutabakat between Quran and Hadith. Alright? So there's an amazing correlation between Quran and Hadith. Alright. So, but, now this is the most important. If everything you ever need to know about Quran and Hadith, about magic, is this ayah. And this ayah will govern. This part of the ayah that I'm about to read to you in the Arabic is going to govern every single thing. This is the master ayah, the master teaching, the most important thing for us in terms of practical persons. What is that? وَمَا هُمْ بِذَارِينَ بِهِ and they will never be able to harm a person be by means of he asir by means of magic. Min ahadin, not a single person. All of those shayateen will never be able to harm others by means of that magic. They will not be able to min ahadin harm a single person by means of that magic. Illa bi'idhnillah. Except due to the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is why our, my own teachers, Asatis and Mashaikh, would always say that don't go to Amils. Don't go to people who are going to try to counter that magic. Don't go to quote-unquote good Amil. Don't go to even Dirbandi Amil. Don't go to the Amil who doesn't charge you anything. Don't go to the Amil who has a long flowing white beard. Don't go. Because Allah Ta'ala has said in Quran, Quran Azimu Sha'an, that magic will not harm the shayateen, let alone humans. Shayateen doing magic cannot even harm any single one, min ahadin, except with the permission of Allah. So what you should do, you should learn how to put yourself in the hifaza of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Make yourself such that Allah will never give that permission to the shayateen. And that is number one, to lead a life of taqwa, sunnah, ibadah, and sharia. And number two, there are certain du'as that are mentioned in hadith. And certain surahs, it's coming to be the very last day, inshallah, if we can pick up our speed, <laughs> right? Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas, certain surahs and certain du'as that you can use to put yourself in that hifazah. That's it. That's all you need. That's all you need. Okay? Second most important ayah you need to learn. وَيَتَعَلَّمُونَ مَا يُذُرُّهُمْ وَلَا يَنْفَأُهُمْ And those people learned. What could harm them and what could not bring them any benefit whatsoever? It may not say that in your screen. Can wala and will not have any nafar for them. So don't think that no, there's don't be Harry. This is what I'm saying. Don't be Harry Potterish that they're evil wizards and they're good wizards. And somebody's done black magic on me, so I'll go to the white magic practitioner. No, there is no white magic. La yanfa'uhum. There is no benefit. There is no nafar to be found in this. Clear in Quran Kareem? Alright. Clear? Okay, now we go back to space. So then they, they used to learn what harmed them and then it did. Okay. And they certainly knew that that person who engages in it, so who engages in magic? Now this is Ahmed, it doesn't say good or bad. 
لمن اشتراه ماله في الآخرة من خلاق من خلاقن. That that person who engages in magic will not have anything, anything in the Akhirah. No share in the Akhirah. So it is terrible the thing that they have exchanged, i.e. magic, because they've traded Jannah for that away. And they've sold a part of themselves. Lo kanu ya'lamun. Allah is saying, if only they knew. If only they knew not to line up in front of Amil Sahib. If only they knew to line up in front of Wali Kamil and ask him to teach them some taqwa and sunnah and dhikr and deen. If only they had known. If only they knew. Alright? Okay. And had they accepted the faith and had they had been people of Iman and been people of taqwa, then the reward from Allah sponsor would have been much better for them. And if, if only they knew. Now what you have here is an interesting thing. Right? You have first, indeed they knew, and then later you have only they knew. Maybe that part hasn't come yet. Yes, you had lakal alimu. Yeah, they certainly knew. If you look in your English, there is, but they certainly knew. They certainly knew. In the Arabic, lakal alimu. They certainly knew that that person does magic, has no share in the after. And now Allah Ta'ala is saying they only knew. So sometimes, again, people who take a completely rational approach to Quran, they look at these things and translate, but does it make sense? First, Allah is saying, indeed, they certainly knew. And then Allah is saying, if only they had known, right? So which is it? Either they definitely knew, you, you understand? Either they definitely knew, or if only they had known. So actually, there are two different types of knowledge, right? And I would explain this to you maybe a bit more uh, in the Arabic way of understanding this. But the way we explain this is that basically when you know something, or let's say when you do something, right? Let, let me put this English. Okay, how about this? Knowing something and realizing something. They knew it was wrong, if only they realized how wrong it was. Let me give you our example. We knew it. We know it's wrong to not pray. Lakad alimu. We certainly know it's wrong to not to not pray. Lo kanu yatlamun. If only they realized how wrong it is not to pray. Now you understand? There's no, there's no ta'aras here. There's, there's no conflict here. And in fact, every time I see when a rational person who has not studied the Islamic sciences touches Quran, he always kills the spirituality first. He doesn't realize it. This is a great spiritual lesson Allah is trying to give us. That you know you're doing something wrong, but if only you knew the magnitude of that wrong, if only you realized the consequences of that wrong, you know it's wrong to miss it, but if only you knew what it really meant to miss it. That's what's being said here. So there's a contradiction. There's a message being given. So they knew for sure that engaging in magic was wrong. If only they had known how devastating it would be for them. Now you understand? And not only there's no contradiction, but there's a very important lesson over here. All right. Next thing that Allah SWT is mentioning is that, Oh, you believe, don't say, Ra'ina. So what is the story behind this? The story behind this is this Arabic word ra'ina. It means do our re'aya. As you say in Urdu, ra'at Consider us, cast your attention towards us. I don't know how he translates. He hasn't even translated. Okay. So ra'ina. So consider us, cast your gaze towards us. Focus to us. It's a way to call a person's attention. Right? This is an Arabic word completely fine. But it turns out in Hebrew, it turns out that this word in Hebrew, me actually means a curse. It's a curse word in Hebrew. So the Muslims started saying this, the Sahaba started saying this to the Prophet right? Ra'ina, O Prophet turn your gaze towards us, consider us, the way to call his attention. 
So the Jews saw that and they got happy that, oh, we'll say the same thing. So they said the same thing and then the Sahaba and the Prophet were thinking that they were also saying, give us some attention. But actually they were cursing the Prophet So Allah revealed this verse. Look how much Allah loves Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam. The Sahaba are saying a perfectly acceptable word. But the Prophet says, no, but say unzurna, that you would know another, right? Look at us. Change the word. It's a synonym. It's a synonym, right? Change the word that you use. Change the word that you use. Now there's a nukta here, right? Shaykh Tanvi Rahimullah has given a wonderful, a wonderful spiritual point here. That sometimes you have to leave the permissible if the permissible will lead to harm. So saying the word ra'in is completely permissible in sharia, right? But if it leads to some harm, you have to leave it. This is actually the level of deen that these great ulama and awliya were on. They would, they would leave the prohibited, the haram. They would leave what was disliked, the makruhat. And they would even leave mubahat, even things that were permissible. If doing that thing that was permissible led to some complication, led to some difficulty. And we are people who can't even leave, right? That which is prohibited. Alright, and listen, so, 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 undurna and samitna, so instead say, look at us and listen to us, as there's a grievous punishment for the unbelievers who were saying that word with the intention of a curse. Those who disbelieve from among the people of the book and the mushrikeen do not like it when any good thing comes upon you. They can't stand it when you get a khair from your Rabb. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yakhtasu bi rahmatihi man yashad. Another important ayah for you. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala selects for His mercy, whomsoever He wants. And you should make this dua to Allah SWT. I want to be selected by you for your mercy. Select me. Right? I may not be worthy, but you said, Man yasha. You didn't say who was earning it. You didn't say who deserved it. You didn't say who was capable of it. You didn't say who should get it. You said whoever you want. This is a part of the mercy of Allah. He's left it up to Him. In other words, you, what we want is that we don't want merit-based entry into Jannah. <laughs> Because we have merit-based entry into Jannah. <laughs> merit for Fesla, huh? <laughs> oh. <laughs> so what we want, we need this. We need this, man yasha. It's not Allah Ta'ala's injustice, it's His mercy. There's no one who actually is merit-based worthy of Jannah. Even the Prophet said that about himself. Right? So it doesn't mean man yasha, Allah is going to take people who are worthy of His mercy and not give it to them. No, this was one way that those who are unworthy of it, He can select them for it. Okay? okay, and this ayah it's not saying that the Prophet is unworthy of revelation, but Allah Ta'ala is saying to the Jews that, no, look, we had so many anbiya from all of the anbiya, from Musa to Isa were Bani Ishaq. Now we selected last Nabi Khatam to be from Bani Ismail. Alright? Wallahu dhu fadlin adim, and Allah Ta'ala is of tremendous grace and tremendous uh, mercy. This is a very interesting topic of detailed topic of Quran that whenever we abrogate a verse of Quran or we cause people to forget that verse, then we will bring a verse that is better than it or we will bring a verse that is similar or like or equivalent to it. Don't you know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is powerful over each and every single thing? What does this mean here? Now what happened here is the second part of the ayah is giving you a nukta into why is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to abrogate. Because somebody may have asked this question, that someone may have asked this question, does Allah ta'ala have power over Quran? Sounds like a nonsensical question to ask, I mean a pointless question to ask, right? What's the point of such a question? But let's say somebody asked this question. Does Allah Ta'ala have power over Quran or was He forced to reveal the Quran the way it was revealed? So just for that reason, Allah Ta'ala said, okay, just to show you that I have power over every single thing, 
So during the course of revelation, this is one reason, during the course of revelation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did something called naskh. Now there are three types of naskh, broadly speaking. Broadly speaking. More technically, there are four types, but that's way too technical to do. So I've sort of summarized and combined some things. First type of naskh is what we call mansukh al-hukam. Mansukh al-hukam means that the ayah is still there in the Quran. It hasn't been taken out. Nun seha, by the way, that's what it means. It's taken out. And Allah Ta'ala makes people forget it because they stop reciting it. They don't have to memorize it in their hips about them. Never recited it in the prayer because it's no longer Quran. The first type, however, it remains in Quran, but its hukam, its legal ruling is suspended. So an example of that is coming in Surah Baqarah itself, but it's coming quite ahead. So I'll just tell you Surah number 2, Surah Baqarah, verse number 240. In the earliest Muslim period, there was a ruling that when a person died, the widow, the widow, the wife of that husband, the widow, she would have to seclude herself for an entire year, one year iddat, an entire year. And then the men were told that before they pass away, if they have the money, they should leave a wasir or bequeath, leave behind enough money to support their wife for a year. So that exact hukam in those words is in Surah Baqarah, verse number 240. But that's actually not the ruling anymore. The iddat is not one year. Because elsewhere in the Quran you will see that Allah changed the ruling. So then again, a person who looks says, well, why would Allah Ta'ala change ruling? Now, if the Qur'an was revealed instantly, it, yes, it would be a contradiction. But remember, Qur'an was revealed over 22 plus years. You will find that Allah Ta'ala did this, sometimes has, there are other examples like this, Allah Ta'ala does some relaxation in the ruling within Sahaba. Because Allah Ta'ala wanted to show them that it's not just, it's a bit difficult for you to grasp this in English, it's not just that the ummah, the entire ummah as Muslims, has lighter commands than previous ummahs. For example, the Jews, when they have something impure, for example, they have kosher, like our halal. If something that is not kosher, not, let's say a piece of pork, let's just even take the most common example. If they have a plate and somebody puts a piece of pork on it, and then they take it off, they can't wash that plate, they have to throw that plate. There's no way of tahara for them. For us, okay, we'll wash the plate three times and we can use it again to eat anything we want. That's one example. There are many examples like that, that in terms of the ummah, this ummah has been given easier dispensations than certain previous ummahs. There may be other things that some of you may feel that are more difficult, <laughs> right? Okay. What Allah SWT wants to do is that within sahaba as well, He wanted that the sahaba should feel that in the beginning, Allah SWT put a few things that were a bit more strict on them. And some of them are coming also pertaining to fasting, it's coming. Quite a few things are coming like that in Baqarah. And then he relaxed them in the time of Saba across those 22 years. This was one of the will and wish of Allah SWT that he wanted them also to feel that he gave them some type of special mercy. Menhaythu annahu sahaba as opposed to menhaythu ummah for those of you who understand the Arabic. Alright? That's one example of nas. That's called mansukh al Second type of example is called mansukh al opposite. What does it mean? The first example was that the words are still there but the legal ruling doesn't apply anymore. This is the opposite. The words are no longer there, but the legal ruling applies. The most famous of this is the issue of rajam or stoning the adulterer to death. Now the question is, why would Allah Taala do this? If the legal ruling still applies, then why would you take those words out of the Quran? Right? If the legal ruling still applies, why would you take those words out of Quran? So the ulama have written that this was also, like the first thing was the granting of a mercy. This was a test. This was a test that Allah Ta'ala wanted to include in our iman bil ghayb, because you see, Quran is not ghayb for us. You can see it, right? You can try to study it and understand it, right? And there's a whole 
This Ummah for 1400 years has done many, many tafsir activities. So he wanted to make the Qur'an al-Kareem dakhil in Iman bil ghayb And one or two, and some people say it's just Rajam, right? One or two such rulings like that. Another reason people give in addition, not necessarily different from this, but in addition to this, is that Allah Ta'ala wanted to make us absolutely dependent on the Prophet for understanding the teachings of Qur'an. And absolute utter dependency would mean that, that it's something that is as strong as Qur'an, but it's not even in Qur'an, you have to get it from the Prophet And the third type of nas, which is also coming, hopefully I'll try to reach it today, is where Allah Subhanahu within the Qur'an just changes the ruling. Some people have also used the word nas for that. The most famous of this is changing of the Qibla, that first the Sahaba Qur'an were praying towards, Baytul Maqaddis towards Jerusalem, and then Allah Subhanahu Qur'an changed the ruling and made them pray towards the Kaaba, towards Makkah Mukarramah. Alright? Okay. So, the key thing for us here is what? That Allah subhanahu says, whenever this happens, na'ti bi khayrin minha, will always bring you something better than it. Right? O mithliha, or something that is equal or similar to it. So, it's, in other words, it's always for betterment. It's always a part of mercy. So, Allah subhanahu has chosen to give us mercy in multiple ways. Right? That's the way and the will of wish of Allah subhanahu Alright. And so don't you know that Aspanta is powerful over everything, including how and when he chooses to send and reveal his revelation upon you. All right. Okay, we can go over this next part of it. Do you not, uh, do you not know that to Allah Aspanta belongs everything that is in the firmaments and in the earth? Other than Allah Aspanta, you have neither a wali or a nasir, no protecting friend, nor any helper. Or do you rather wish to question your Prophet ﷺ as Sayyidina Musa ﷺ was questioned by his people earlier? In other words, Sunnah Allah Ta'ala, after all this is hitting the nail on the head and telling the believers that after you've seen all of this, Am turiduna an tas'alu rasulakum? Do you want to make su'al of your Prophet ﷺ? Question his sunnah question. He's not saying tas'aluna Qur'an. He's not saying to question the sunnah. Question hadith. Right? Because what Musa, all that dialogue that you saw, let me explain this to you. The Qur'an talks about what Musa said to his believers, right? That's not Torah. That was Musa hadith. That is the sayings of Musa He's talking to his believers, right? You cannot find those sentences even in the original Torah. So this is what Allah Ta'ala is saying, that are you going to question the hadith of your prophet, the sayings and statements of your prophet, Rasulullah, the way those Bani Israel questioned the hadith and sayings and statements of Sayyidina Musa Alright. And if a person does that, how does Allah label that? kufra That that person who trades and makes this exchange and chooses to kufr, build iman in exchange for iman, then, that that person has gone away from this. Sawa sabil is another way for straight path. Like Siratul Mustaqim. Alright. Now comes another thing that all you believe. Many among the people of the book, Ahli Kitab, desire to turn you back on your iman turn you back to your unbelief after you have accepted iman. Why hasad? Hasadam min inde anfusihim. That inside their nafs there is hasad. Min ba'dima tabayyina luhumul haq. Even after they realize that you are on haq. So what does this mean? That they don't want you to practice your deen. You're Muslim. They don't want you to be Muslim. They don't want you to talk Muslim. They don't want you to act Muslim. They don't want your country to have the honesty that a Muslim country should have. They don't want your country to have the nazm that a Muslim country should have. They don't want your country to have an itminan that a Muslim country should have. They don't want you to have the sunnah that a Muslim should have. They don't want it. 
And so they have their multi-billion dollar media and fashion and society effort on you. And their own educational system sent upon you. Because they want to turn you back. They don't want you to be who Allah Ta'ala originally intended you to be. Right? So, what should you do? Now, what should be your response? Watch this. What should be your response? And some of you may be stunned, but I'm going to tell you honestly. Honestly, I'm telling you this. And those of you who know me know I'm not a person to act liberal for the sake of it. Right? Fa'fau. This should be a reaction to those unbelievers who are trying to turn you away from your deen. This is your reaction to the Danish cartoonist. What is your reaction? Al-Tal says in Quran, Fa'fau. Overlook that. You can say, Afwa, forgive it. Overlook it. Don't worry about it. Wasfahu And wait. Hatta yati Allahu bi amri. Let Allah Ta'ala handle it. Allah Ta'ala will handle it. You don't have to get involved. Don't react. Don't be emotional. Be strong. <laughs> Stick to what you know and what your deen is. And don't react to them. And if you think about it, it makes sense. What would you expect? Obviously a non-Muslim doesn't want you. Not every one of them, but there are going to be certain of them, right? Certainly, Allah Ta'ala said, right, that there are going to be certain of them who are going to want to do this. Allah Ta'ala said, كَثِيرٌ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ Right? Allah Ta'ala said the vast majority of them. Now, always remember, Quran is not something to be tested by your personal experience. It's not for me to say. Right? I could factually say this to you, that actually in my life, right, so the first 25 years of my life in America, the vast majority of people weren't trying to keep me away from Islam. But I cannot use my one data sample and use that to say Allah Ta'ala is wrong in Qur'an. If Allah Ta'ala is saying in Qur'an, كَثِيرٌ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ The majority of Ahl al-Kitab want that you shouldn't be on your deen. It means exactly what Allah Ta'ala says, the majority don't want you to be on your deen. So I'll give you an example that the men can send. The majority of Western multinationals, if they want to hire you to, for their London office, won't hire you if you look like me. I think that's the majority, it's not the minority. Right? Just on the, is, is that merit-based? If I looked and dressed differently, maybe they'd hire me. It nothing to do with my merit then, right? It's nothing to do with my merit, ability, skill, degree, capability, performance. It's a different thing. What is that different thing? What are they looking at? It's my deen. Right? So, if Allah Ta'ala is saying it, it doesn't mean you should be badzan, because Allah Ta'ala knew that don't get reactive and think, oh, start getting badzan. Allah said, fa'afo. Allah Ta'ala told you how to emotionally respond, you should relax, be forgiving, pardon, overlook it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Let them draw us cartoon. What difference does it make to us? If a Muslim draws it, that's a different thing. If a Muslim draws it, it's different. If a non-Muslim in a Muslim country draws it, that's also a different thing. If a non-Muslim in a non-Muslim country does it, what do you expect? What do you expect of an atheist? What do you think an atheist is going to think about your prophet? Alright? Okay. Inna Allah ala kulli shay'in kadir and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is powerful over everything. Better leave those things that Allah ta'ala wants to handle himself. Leave it to him. It makes sense, right? If somebody is more powerful than you and he says, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. You relax. <laughs> you say, Bar Sardar, Right? You relax. That's what Allah is saying. Just don't, I'll handle it. I'll handle it. And I can handle it because inna Allah ala kulli shay'in kadir. Waqeemu salat and you should establish the prayer and you should pay the zakat. 
And whatever khair you do, whatever good that you will send forth, you will find it with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All right? What is being said here? There's some reason for this. Here, whatever good you do, you will find it with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Indeed, Allah tells watchful of everything that you do. They say, that these people say that no one will enter, no one will ever, ever enter Jannah except that person who is Jew or Christian. So at this point, remember this because this is going to come up later. At this point, the Quran is saying that these people sometimes try to present that we are, so you'll find this. They call it Judeo-Christian civilization. That's EU. Turkey, that's not worthy for EU. Right? Again, not merit-based. Not performance-based. Turkey's economy wouldn't make the EU crash the way Greece did. Right? It's not merit-based. It's not performance-based. It's Judeo-Christian. Judeo-Christian is a word those of you who have studied, right, in the secular liberal arts, it's a term. So that's what's going on. They will claim that only Judeo... I'm, I'm, twist, I'm adding it a little bit to you, right, that Judeo-Christian is the only proper civilization. What, what, what those people were saying then is only Jews and Christians will go into Jannah. No one else is going to go. These are their fancies or their hopes. Tilka amani yuhum. These are their whims and fancies and hopes and desires. Kul hatu burhanukum in kuntum sadiqeen. That you should bring your proof if you are truthful. Okay, by the way, I should make a running point that sometimes people use this eye of the Qur'an and one another. You shouldn't do that. It's against the adab of Qur'an. And when Allah Ta'ala, this is kalamullah, and He's addressing it to Jews and Christians, so it doesn't mean when two Muslim scholars debate one another, you should say to the one, right? bring your dalil if you are correct. It's not a proper way to write. Unfortunately, a couple of scholars in the past have written this way. Always remember that we take 99%, which is the correct the best of them, and if everyone, sometimes somebody slips, you don't take that. Unfortunately, there is a movement today, what, what they do is they take the slips of these two, three scholars, and they translate that into Urdu. And it makes you get a very corrupted perception of them as well. And they're a great noble awliyaullah, right? Here, I'm not taking their name because that's a long scholastic discussion, which you may not understand, but it's not a way to talk to somebody. This is kalamullah, understand that. Use words of Qur'an as du'a. This is taqabbar to use words of Qur'an against somebody else, to use kalam Allah and make it your kalam and use it against somebody else. Alright? Okay. But indeed that person who submits their countenance to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means submits their self. Man aslama wajhuhu lillahi wa huwa muhsinun falahu ajruhu inda rabbihi wa la khawfun alayhim wa la hum yasinun. That person who submits themselves to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does this mean here? Also the word waj is not literal. You don't literally submit your face, it means you submit your whole body. What does waj here mean? It comes from another Arabic, it's related to another Arabic, it means tawajju. Tawajju means your orientation, your focus. It means that person who submits the orientation of their entire being and leads an Allah-oriented life, an Allah-Quran-Deen-oriented life. It doesn't mean literally just their face. It means an Allah-oriented life. Then uh, they... Uh, they, they will have their reward with Allah SWT and there will be no such fear on them and nor will they grieve. Now, having said or suggested that when the Jews and Christians quoting them, they suggest that they are together and they both believe that both of them are going to join to Jannah. Actually, the Jews say that the Christians have nothing to stand on and the Christians say the Jews have nothing to stand on while they both read the Kitab. So they both have the scripture but they both have disagreements between one another. Similarly, those who don't know, in other words, those who don't have any revelation which with the Mushrikeen of Makkah Mukarramah, who are the unbelievers of Makkah Mukarramah, they say that uh, 
they say the same thing that the Jews and like the Jews and Christians say. In other words, that they say that nobody other than them is going to be successful. Everybody is saying it's only me. That's a simpler way to put it. Jews are saying it's only us. Christians are saying it's only us. The Mushrikeen are saying it's only us. All right. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would judge between them on the day of judgment and that which they used to dispute with one another. All right. Here the point to note is that here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't respond. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't say point blank only the Muslims will go to Jannah. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He just says that, okay, if Jews and Christians are disagreeing between one another, and then insert into that mushrikeen of Makr also disagreeing with the two of them, so all three are disputing with one another, Allah says, I am the one who decides all these disputes. That's it. Who is more... So who is more unjust than that person who prevents people from going to the masajid of Allah subhanahu wa so this suggests that even before Masjid al-Nabwi Sassam, there were always places of worship, houses of worship, places of sujood. That's what a masjid is, masjid is the plural of masjid. And what is the purpose of the masjid? أَنْ يُذْكَرَ فِيهِ فِيهَا إِسْمُهُ That the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should be remembered. Dhikr of the ism of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what is done in the masjid. Alright? So who is worse than that? So who is worse? I mean, you know, again, it's going to apply to the Muslims of today. Who is worse than that uncle who tells his son not to go for Jamaat in the masjid? Allah Akbar. Right? It's the same thing. It's exactly word for word. Word for word. Right? Wasa'afi khirabiha. And khirabiha, what they're trying to do, is, now this is your Urdu word khirab. They're trying to spoil this whole system. All of the efforts are focused on spoiling the system of establishing ibadah. You see, Masajid Allah, these are the places of worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on earth. These are places where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to establish a system of His worship. And how should you enter these Masajid? مَا كَانَ لَهُمْ أَنْ يَدْخُلُوهَا إِلَّا خَائِفِينَ that they shouldn't enter these masjids except in a period of khawf. There's other for us. We enter the masjid talking on our cell phone, even if the azan is going on or the first rakat al-awt is going on. You should enter, you know when you enter a grand hall, you feel the grandeur of that hall. When you enter masjid of Allah, you're supposed to feel the grandeur of Allah. That's why Kaaba, there's nothing grand about the Kaaba, it's a simple structure. But you're supposed to feel the grandeur of that Allah whose bait it is. You see, in the secular world, so their architecture, they make it grand. So the structure makes you feel, right? When you have the huge hundred foot ceilings and arches and you walk around and you feel something, right? You feel the splendor and grandeur of the place. When we go into a masjid and we go into Kaaba, we go in front of Kaaba, we feel the grandeur and splendor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. And khaifin specifically does mean khawf, fear. So to feel fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Lahum fil dunya khizyun wa lahum fil akhirati adhaban adheem that they will be disgraced and have loss in this world and they will be punished with a tremendous punishment in the afterlife. To Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, okay, here comes this issue is coming about. It's the beginning, although we're going to have one or two things in the middle, but here comes the issue of the qibla. But it is coming later. To Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala belongs everything that is in the east and everything that is in the west. It means everything belongs to Allah. Wheresoever you turn, فَثَمَّ وَجْهُ Alright, what does that mean? It doesn't mean the face again. It means you will find Allah oriented towards you. 
Whatever direction you are facing, Allah is always oriented towards you. You will find the tawajjuh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is always oriented towards you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is extremely expansive in his knowledge and all alim is all knowing. That's the nisbat between wasi and alim over here. Then those people who have taken, they said another group now. Now you have the beginning of the Christians. Up to now we haven't talked about the Christians yet. We talked about kuffar, mushrikeen, we talked about manafiqeen, mu'mineen, Jews, now Christians. Those people who said that Allah subhanahu has taken a son. Subhanahu. Allah Ta'ala is exalted above any such thing. Now the Jews, there was a group of Jews who said that Sayyidina Uzair was the son of Allah. All Christians believed that Sayyidina Isa was the son of Allah. And the mushrikeen of Mecca believed in some type of angelic beings or fairies or angels or daughters of Allah. They used to even have some statues which they felt that they represent deities that were binat or daughters of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala belongs everything that is above. I did that for you yesterday, the above firmaments and to everything that lies on the earth. And every person should be qanitun, strictly and firmly obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Strictly and firmly obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bidiyu wal ard. Bidiyu here means, so there's a difference between the word bidiyu and khaliq. Badia means, okay, this is an interesting point for you because your people, some of you have studied some level of science. Okay. There are two words for a creator. One is Badia and one is Khalik. Khalik means to create from matter. And Badia means to create without matter. To create matter itself. To create something out of nothing. And then to create something out of something. So Badia means to create something out of nothing. To create matter from the immaterial. And khalik means to create matter from the material. And this is part of the answer to where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, here you will find this in science as well. You see, they will also have to accept that there has always been a state when matter was non-existent. Right? Now the interest of the ancient Greek philosophers got around this. They weren't actually like the scientists of today. So the Greek, ancient Greek philosophers used to believe in what we call the pre-eternity of the world. They felt that matter always existed. And some of them also believed in the pre-eternity of the soul, that the ruh also existed. And some of them also believed in the pre-eternity of the aql, that intellects also existed. Deen of Islam says only Allah Ta'ala is pre-eternal. Everything else was brought into existence. Science says, interestingly, both things. There, this is one of the biggest paradoxes of uh, modern astrophysics. And this particular area of astrophysics is called cosmology. Right, which I studied under David Schramm, I still remember, at the University of Chicago. And they, they can't get around this one. So for them, everything has an origin. But the origin has no origin. Everything has an origin, but the origin has no origin. They can't explain that to you. They have all types of ways they try to explain the paradox but they can never explain the origin. That's the simplest way I can explain to you without changing this into a complete astrophysics cosmology class. All of their literature and effort is done, is focused on explaining this paradox. They're not even trying to explain the origin. Nice something. All right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has explained it clearly in two of his sifat, that he is that being who can bring something out of nothing who can cause matter to exist where none existed before. That's, even science accepts that. That there was a time when matter comes into existence, and before that it must not have existed. 
And later on, matter is being permuted and made out of matter, right? So these swirls that are made from the Big Bang are gradually coalescing and forming into star clusters, which then split into galaxies, which form solar systems. That's all khalik. That's all khalik. That's no problem with that. <laughs> That's all khalik. All right? So, what was Osmanta saying? So he is the creator from nothing, the originator, that's a good term, of the heaven, of the firmaments, right? All that is above, and I told you yesterday, very important if you weren't here yesterday, that includes everything that is above, not just the quote-unquote heavens and the earth. And if Allah Subhanahu decides, وَإِذَا كَذَا أَمْرًا فَإِنَّمَا يَكُولُ لُهُ كُنْ When Allah Subhanahu decides on any matter or affair, He simply states to that matter, affair, thing, idea, concept, feeling, whatever that thing is, كُنْ become, come into being, for يَكُونَ and it comes into being. Now, our Shaykh Mawasir Firman was mentioning today that some people raise a question here on this ayah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has elsewhere said in the Qur'an that He created the universe in six days, right? And here Allah is saying that He just says something to be and it comes into existence. So what does that mean, right? Does, is it, apparently, does it take a six-day delay from kun to fuyukun? Because this ayah makes it sound like it's instantaneous. So, oh, this is what the problem is. So no, uh, actually... When Allah Ta'ala tells, gives something a command, it's going to fulfill the command the way it was ordered. For example, if Allah Ta'ala commands a seed to sprout into a tree, it doesn't mean that Allah Ta'ala wants the seed to instantly transfer into a tree. His command to the seed will be understood by the seed that, okay, now I've got to start developing, extending roots, popping up, becoming a sapling, becoming a small tree, becoming a big tree, and that may take that seed 20, 30 years. So the way Allah Ta'ala chose to unfold the creation of the universe was in six time intervals. No, it's not really days. It's not the 24-hour earth day. There's no earth. There's no sun. Day means a certain revolution of the earth on its axis, right? And has to do with the sunlight hitting you and the not hitting you. There's no, there's no earth and sun at this point. So, ayam in, that, in those verses when it comes means six intervals, six stages, six periods. That was Allah's wish. Stage one obviously would have been to create matter out of nothing. In fact, you could even maybe divide modern cosmology into six stages, right? And then the formation of matter clusters and then further refinement, etc. All right. Those who don't know, those who don't know say that why is it that Allah Ta'ala doesn't speak to us? Why don't we get the wahi? Right? Why don't we get the wahi? It could mean why didn't our community get a prophet or it could mean why am I not a prophet at some set? Why didn't I become a prophet? Sometimes I tell you we had a friend. Maybe I shouldn't say his name, but I won't say his name. But if, well, I wouldn't even. He wasn't a close friend, but a person at the University of Chicago studying with us. So very sweet, very sweet young man. So one day a group of us were sitting and we were talking about a psalm, and he had a question. Oh no, we were saying. You no, know, what happened was that the students were saying that if I could go back in time to Medina Menorah, I would do this and I would do that. And everybody said, well, I, if I could go back in time, I would go meet this person. If I would go back in time, I would do this. So when, when he, it was his, what did he say? He said, if I could go back in time, I would have told the Prophet that you stay here, I'm going up to Ghadhira. <laughs> he said, if I could go back in time, I would climb the mountain and I would go into and I would become the Prophet. And he was saying it's sincere. I mean, I mean, I think Allah Ta'ala would have loved him for saying that because of the way and the intention that he said it, right? But these people are saying it in a different way, right? In a way of hasad, that they're upset and they have envy and the jealousy and saying, why does one to speak to us? Nor does any sign come to us. And people before them used to say the same thing that these do. Now, where is this thing coming from? Where is this thing coming from? 
Again, in their kalb. So the feeling of hasad, where does that come? It's also coming from inside. This feeling of envy and jealousy is coming from inside. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says then, surely we have, sent, uh, we have made the, ayat, the signs and manifestations clear for the people who are common yukinun, people who are striving for certainty is what it should say. Right? People who are striving for certainty can achieve certainty in the signs that Allah Ta'ala has manifested to them. Right? Okay. And then we have sent you with truth as a bearer of glad tidings and as a warner. And you will not be asked, so this is addressed to the Prophet you will not be asked about Ashab al-Jahim. Jahim is another word for Jahannam. You will not be asked about the companions of Jahannam. And those who by means of their actions earn Jahannam in your lifetime, Prophet you won't be asked about them that why didn't you bring them the deen. Your job was to bring them the glad tidings of deen and to warn them from Jahannam. And even if then they choose Jahannam, you won't be responsible for it. All right. Now another ayah about the Jews and the Christians. That they will never be pleased with you. The Jews and Christians will never be pleased with you until you follow their millah. Now this is very important. This is also another one that you should hear and you should know in Arabic. وَلَن تَرْضَى أَنْكَ الْيَهُودُ وَلَن نَصَارَ حَتَّى تَتَّبِعَ مِلَّتُهُمْ that never ever will the Jews and Christians be pleased with you until you follow their millah. Now, when the Quran lays down such a universal rule, those of you who know Arabic, when you say lan, this is now a universal rule. Never ever ever will the Jews and Christians be pleased with you, Muslims, until you follow their millah. Now the question is, why does it say deen? You will see also, Jews and Christians don't want you to leave Islam as a deen. They're not trying to wipe Islam off the face of this earth. What they want is that Muslims should leave their millah. They should stay in their deen. They should still call themselves Muslims. But they shouldn't have their millah. There's no effort to convert Pakistan into atheism. There's no effort to do that. There's no attempt to do that. There's no attempt to take out imam. The attempt is to take out millah. You should lose your heritage, your tradition, your ways, your civilization, your adai, your sunnah. That's what the Prophet brought, because you're going to see a little bit, millat is a word that is attached to people. You're going to see millat Ibrahim, Hanifa. So it's a way, sometimes we call it a manhaj. So millat means the prophetic way and lifestyle and culture, and so that's millat. So what does it mean? When will they be pleased with you? When you convert to Judaism and Christianity? No, that, that's not required to please them. When you follow their millah. And this is not, I mean, in terms of, because you're not familiar with Western literature, there's a massive amount of literature coming out from Ivy League universities that talk about global westernization. I'm not coming up with these words. The word westernization is something used by Harvard and Princeton and Columbia professors to talk about what goes on in the world. And they talk about how Tokyo has become westernized and, you know, Japan left their millet. You see, before they were on their millet and they were samurai and kamikaze, right? And these people weren't pleased with them. Now they're completely on their millet and they love Japan. Why can't Turkey enter the EU? Because there's a little bit of millet, a little bit of millet left and it seems to be growing again for some reason. <laughs> if Ataturk had applied for EU admission, they would have gotten it like this. May <laughs> someday. It's Quran in front of you, living Quran. They want you to leave your millat. They don't want you to disbelieve in the Prophet They want you to stop following his sunnah. That's what they want. It's like genetic engineering. You know, you take a plant and you take out, you know, like when they take genetically engineer a watermelon. They take out its seed 
They, they, don't want, they want to keep it a watermelon, but they don't want the seed in it. Seedless watermelon. So what they want is millatless Muslim. You have your deen. So if somebody asks you in a census form, in your application form, you'll tick Muslim. But there's no way they'll ever be able to tell you from a Hindu or anybody else. No way. They want your millat gone. And clearly, Allah Ta'ala means, if you use that word, right? So it means for Allah Ta'ala, millat is important. Millat is a word that's come in Quran. It's part of Quranic Islam. So we need to have our beliefs, but we need to be on our millat. Alright? Kul inna hudallahi huwal huda. Say that indeed it's only the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is guidance. In other words, guidelines. What do I want to be guided by? This is what it means here. The my guidelines and guidance is going to come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And not to be guided by any other thing. Alright. If you follow... Yeah, were you, okay, were you to follow their desires, in other words, were you to follow their desires and leave your millet, despite the knowledge that has come down upon you, after the ilm has come down upon you, there shall be no friend for you against us. You will not have any protecting friend other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is no helper that you can ever hope to find other than him. Those to whom we have given the book and they recited observing the rights of his recitation, they are the ones who believe in it. And those who disbelieve in it, they will be the losers. O Bani Israel, remember the blessings. And then Allah is now repeating this issue. Remember the blessings that I sent down upon you and that I preferred you over all of the worlds. And guard yourselves against the day when no one will be able to stand for anyone, for anything, nor will any shafa'a, nor will any ransom be accepted, or it will be accepted from anyone, nor will shafa'a be of benefit to him, nor shall any support be given to such people. So this is verse number 123. All right. I'm going to explain this issue because I skipped it the first time it came. So I'm going to have to do it today because it's the second time it came. So let me read this for you in Arabic. This is going to be the last verse we do today because I'm going to take about five, six minutes explaining it. So, Surah Baqarah, verse 123. Okay. Fear that day. La nafsin Alright. That no one will be able to answer for anyone. No one will be able to provide recompense for anyone. Wala yukbalu minha adlun. And no one will be able to provide a substitute or iwas or ma'abuz for anyone. Wala tanfa'uha shafa'atun. And no one will be able to benefit through shafa'a. Shafa'a means intercession. Wallahum yunsurun, and such people will not be helped. So the key word lahum yunsurun that they will not be helped. Who are the whom? Who are those people? So who was the address to right above that? Ya bani Israel, the bani Israel are being addressed. Ittaku yoman that they should fear that day when no one will do shafa'a for them. Clear context if you were to look at the Arabic more closely of these two verses. These verses are again 122 and 123. Who is being told that there will not be any shafa'a for them? The Bani Israel. I say this because sometimes people quote this verse to suggest that there's no such thing as no content of intercession. And again, why? Because that suits with the rationality. Because they think rationally, they look at whatever you did, that's what you should be judged upon. And it's unfair that anybody should be allowed to intercede for you. Right? Halak in Pakistan, Yanto Harkam Sifar Shikarwate. Yanto has any sort Right? Here to Shafa, Shafa. On the day of judgment, you don't want to have Shafa. So people quote this ayah. So now you have to look at a few other places in Quran al Kareem.
All right. And this came earlier, by the way. So this is Surah Bakra, Surah 2, verse 123. It came earlier, Surah Bakra, Surah number 2, verse number 48. And I skipped it over there. So they seem to be giving the suggestion that there is no shifa'a. Okay, if you were to look, don't do it on the screen, because I'm going to go a little bit faster. But Surah number 33, verse number 56, says, وَلَا يُقْبَلُوا مِنْهَا شِفَاءَةٌ that there will be no shifa accepted. Same thing is being said, but if you were to look at that, when we come over there, I'll show it to you in more detail. Alright? That it's talking about a particular type. If you go to Surah Mudathir, uh, verse number 48, Allah says in that, فَمَا تَنْفَأُهُمْ شَفَاءَةُ الشَّافِئِينَ Again, Allah Ta'ala, and that may be the best place to do it, but I can explain to you verbally as well. فَمَا تَنْفَأُهُمْ And there will be no benefit to them, whom, a particular group of people, we're being talked about in that surah, what? The shafa'atu shafi'in. The intercession of the interceders. This is Surah Madathir, verse 48. Is that you showing it? Okay. What does that mean? That verse is telling you there are people who Allah Ta'ala is calling shafi'in. There will be people who intercede. Quran is saying that. It's just saying that some groups will not be able to benefit from their intercession anyway. One such group is the Bani Israel. Other groups are mentioned in these different surahs, these different references that I gave you. But there is guaranteed mention of Shafi'in so that there are people who will do that. There are people who will intercede. Alright? Okay. Here, maybe I will do this a little bit more when it comes. Uh, but Allah, I'll give you one more ayah in Surah number 36, verse number 46. Allah subhanahu wa said, "Man dalladi yashfa'u indahu illa bi'idni." Who is there who will be able to do shafa'a, intercede with Allah subhanahu wa illa bi'idnihi, except with His permission? So if you add all of the ayahs, you get that there will be a group of people called shafin who can intercede. Their intercession will only be accepted with the permission of Allah. And then there are all types of home, home, home groups whom Allah will not accept intercession from them, for them from the Shafi'in. And one of those is Bani Israel. And some of those other groups have been mentioned in the Quran. Last, if you want to look at Surah Taha, ayah number 109. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. The earlier, we have to... The, I actually made a skip here. The earlier eyes I was telling you, those weren't actually the references. So Surah Baqarah 48 and Surah Baqarah 123 are the two that we did right now. Alright. And Surah Mudathir Ayah 48 establishes Shafi'in. That is correct. And Surah Taha Ayah 109 also establishes Shifa. That 36-46 I told you was actually just the same thing. That was actually back in Surah Baqarah. So it's not, there's no 36-46. Alright. Okay, Surah Taha, Ayah 109. And that Allah says, la shafa'atu, That on that day, that uh, no shafa will benefit except what? Adinallahul Rahman. That Allah will accept that uh, shafa'ah. The most merciful Allah will give permission or his idhan for that shafa'ah. Alright? Okay. Khair, so this was just a little bit to show you that there is some shafa'ah. And who are those people who are going to get that shifa from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Those are the prophets. So we have in Sahih Deed that Sayyidina Rasulullah will be given haq of shifa. He will be given the right to do shifa. Then it comes in Hadith that also righteous believers will be able to do shifa or will be able to intercede on behalf of other believers in the court of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All right.
Okay, we'll stop over here. So this is Surah Bakra 123. You know what? Let me do a few more verses. This I can do for you very quickly. All right, I'm going to stop it. Verse number 128. I'll just read this to you in English because this can be done within the 505, 510 time I gave you. One. When the Rabbi Sayyidina Ibrahim al-Islam put into his heart some kalimat, some words, and then tested him by means of them, and then said that I am sending you as an imam. Inni nasi imama. I'm sending Ibrahim al-Islam as an imam for all of humanity. What does that mean? That he will have a lot of prophets that will come from his progeny that will serve as imams to humanity. So then, what did Al-Spantal say? So Ibrahim al-Islam said, Min from my physical progeny. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, no, my promise doesn't include your entire physical progeny. You will have a spiritual progeny, which will also be physical. What does that mean? Some of your descendants will be anbiya. And those descendants of yours who are anbiya, they will be imams for all of humanity. But you may have some biological descendants who won't be anbiya. Not every single descendant is going to be a nabi. And among those non-nabi biological descendants, there may be some of them who don't believe, who are, who are transgressors. So while he gave that glad time to Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam, he's also showing the Bani Israel in Surah Baqarah that it's on a purely sacred lineage. And certainly all those Bani Israel who were descended of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam, a lot of them actually turned out to be amongst the Dalnamin. Okay. Now, when he, uh, Allah Ta'ala says in Quran that when we made the Baytullah, what did Allah Ta'ala make? The Baytullah mathabatan linnas, a place uh, that is frequently returned to by people and a tikana or a place of comfort and happiness for all of humanity. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Quran al-Kareem that وَاتَّخِذُوا مِن مَقَامِ إِبْرَهِيمَ مُصَلَّى And this is an important thing that what happened was is that Sayyidina Ibrahim salam had stood on a particular stone to build the Kaaba and his footsteps were there, footprints were there. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala asked the Prophet sallam that can we make this a place where we pray towards Kaaba, not to the stone, but could we pray by this place? This is the first ayah that has come so far, what we call muafika to Umar. This means that those ayah that Allah Ta'ala revealed in accordance with the wishes of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And in the discipline of tafsir, this is viewed as one special discipline that looks at those ayat that Sayyidina Umar would ask a question or say something or make a decision and Allah Ta'ala would reveal revelation according to that. And this is one of the sha'an or one of the great um, praiseworthy characteristics of Sayyidina Umar anhu. It also shows that there is some concept of barakah in the relics and things of the past. Now I don't want to squeeze this out too much because Muslim people understand this. You cannot pray to that stone you're still praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the qurbat and nisbat and tawassul and wasatat of that stone. Now in the Quran, Allah Ta'ala has mentioned Maqam Ibrahim. So some people say, well, no, no, it's only with Maqam Ibrahim. Right? And you would think rationally, well, yes, in the Quran it's become khas. No. Under, now think about it a different way. This, the fact that Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu asked this question shows it was the mentality of sahaba, understanding of sahaba, awareness of sahaba, that if there's anything that has nisbat with some spirituality to do with the past, I'm going to show you several other places in Quran where this comes up, then that is a place of barakah. And if we use that place of barakah to worship Allah, you can't go worship the person in the grave. That's a sin. But there may be a place that has some nisbat with a waliullah or nabiullah. And due to the proximity of that place, your ibadah to Allah alone 
complete tawheed, your ibadah to Allah alone, may be able to, if you will, jump ride the barakah of that place, so you may want to make that place a place where you pray. That was the awareness and understanding of Sayyidina Umar, a sahaba who was trained by Sayyidina Rasulullah So we can say that this was the understanding of sahaba. And it, part of that understanding was this particular question. And so then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then responded in the Quran and that yes, that you can take that place as a musalla. Then Allah ta'ala says, and then we then sent our, uh, we gave this directive to Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam and Sayyidina Ismail alayhi that they should purify my house, Baytullah, for those who wish to make tawaf, this is an act of ibadah, will aqifin and those who wish to stay in itikaf. So this is the notion that you go there and stay. It's exactly what people do when they go for umrah. They do the tawaf umrah, but then they do itikaf. They stay there. They're aqifin the rest of the time. For a small period of time, they're ta'ifin, and the rest of the time, they're aqifin. Waruqa is sujood, and they're firm, and they're ruku, and they're sajda. They are also making sure that they're regular in their prayers. Once in Ibrahim Salam, then after he had made the Kaaba, oh sorry, when, yeah, when he was making this Kaaba, he was worried about the whole city of Makkah Makarma. So he said, Rabbij al baladan aminan, that make this city a city of peace and send upon the people of who will live in this city from the Thamanat, from all of the fruits and produce from everything in the world. Those of the people who live in this city who believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the last day. And this is a nukta I'll explain to you tomorrow. But here also Ibrahim alayhi salam is not mentioning prophets, right? He's saying believe in Allah and the last day. So you're going to see when you do the next, tomorrow's first ayahs, inshallah, that he very much is going to talk about risala. And that shows that belief in Allah and yawm al-akhir is nothing separate or distinct from belief in risala. Anyway, so that person who disbelieves said that I shall let him enjoy a little, then I shall drag him to the punishment of Jahannam, how evil an end it is. Allah SWT said that those who disbelieve, I won't give them the samarat, I will let them enjoy a little bit in this world. What is going on that Sayyidina Ibrahim said that only give the fruits of this world to the believers. Allah SWT said, no, even those who don't believe, I'm still going to give them a little. Now little doesn't mean they're poor. Khalil here means in respect to the akhirah. And respect to the akhirah being the richest country in the world is still poor. Right? So I'm going to give them in this world. But if they die on that unbelief, then Allah is saying, I will drag them to the punishment of Jahannam. And what a terrible end and calamitous end that indeed is. Last ayah then we will do, two, two ayahs, 127 and 128. When Sayyidina Ibrahim was raising up the foundations of Baytullah along with Sayyidina Ismail. When Sayyidina Ibrahim was leading up Baytullah with Sayyidina Ismail, Rabbana taqabbal minna, he made this dua that oh Allah Ta'ala accepted from us. Accept this amal from us. Innaka anta samiul alim. You are all hearing and all knowing. Rabbana waj'alna muslimina lak. And make us people who truly submit to you. I'm now saying that Abraham says, Nabi, he's already a perfect Muslim. But he wants kamil taslim. Wa min dhurriyatina. And from our children and our descendants and our progeny, raise up ummatum muslimatan. Raise up a whole community of people who completely submit laka to you. وَأَلِنَا مُنَاسِكَنَا And now teach us how we should do ibadah around this Baytullah. وَتُوبُ alayna And send your tawbah and your mercy and accept our forgiveness. إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ التَّوَّابُ الرَّحِيمُ Indeed, you are the one who is all accepting of tawbah and all merciful. Inshallah, we'll explain the academic parts of this dua tomorrow. But we thought it was a fitting place to end. سُبْحَانَ رَبِّ لَا وَهَابَ اللَّهُمَّ صَلِّ عَلَى سَيِّدِنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَعَلَى آلِ سَيِّدِنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَبَارِكْ وَسَلِّمْ رَبَّنَا ظَلَمْنَا أَنفُسَنَا وَإِلَّمْ تَغْفِرْ لَنَا وَتَرْحَمْنَا لَنَكُونَنَّا مِنَ الْخَاسِرِينَ
Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you protect us and save us and purge us from having any single one of the attributes of the Bani Israel that you have reprimanded in Quran. Let us not even resemble it. Let us not have a trace of it. Let us not have a shadow of it. Ya Allah, as bad and disloyal followers they were, Sayyidina Musa Islam, make us as good and loyal followers of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you keep us in the millet of Islam, keep us in the culture of Islam, keep us in the tradition of Islam, keep us in the civilization of Islam, keep us in the millet of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu keep us on his seerat mubarakah his hayat tayyibah his sunnat sharifa Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, ask that you accept us for a life of living the Qur'an. Our only intention here is kunu rabbaniyin, that we want to follow this Qur'an, live this Qur'an, learn this Qur'an. We don't want just to hear the hidayah. We don't want just to learn the hidayah. We want to submit and follow the hidayah. We want to be amongst the muhtadun. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you accept this amal of ours. Accept these few hours of our life and make it a means to wipe away years of our sin. Accept these few hours that we sit in front of Quran and let it wipe away years which we have spent neglecting this Quran. Ya Allah Rabbi Kareem, you can even accept the toba of a moment, the toba of a second. Ya Allah Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you accept our toba on this moment in the heat of the summer day, reading about the intense Adabun Adim and Alim and Muheen of Jahannam. Ya Allah, we make Tawbah for all of our sins. Ya Allah, we are weak human beings. We cannot even handle the heat of the summer sun. How can we handle the heat of the fire of your Jahannam? Ya Rabbi Kareem, send your mercy upon us. You said in Quran, and we read in your Quran, that you are At-Tawabul Rahim, that you accept the Tawbah of everyone who makes Tawbah to you, and you send all of your mercy down, down on humanity. Ya Allah, make us Abdul Tawab, make us Abdul Rahim. Make us servants and slaves. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Rabbana taqabbal minna innaka anta as-sameeul alim. Wa tubu alayna innaka anta at-tawabul rahim. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Bi rahmatika ya arhamar rahimin. Amen.